He's here! My mystery date! The following podcast contains mature language and spoilers. Listener's discretion is advised. Mystery date, are you ready for your mystery date? Don't be late, it would be great. Open the door for your mystery date. It's mystery date, the thrilling new Milton Bradley game of romance and mystery that's just for you. And you, and you. And you, mystery date, will you be ready for swimming or a dance? When you open the door, will your mystery date be a dream or a dud? Fun and surprises, that's mystery date. Remember, Milton Bradley makes the best games in the world. So girls, open the door for your mystery date. Mystery date. This portion of American Bandstand is brought to you by Chewy Chewy Tootsie Rolls, the candy that lasts a long time. And by new formula spray net by Helene Curtis, the complete hairspray. Hello there. Hello there. Thank you, Charlie. Oh, very much. It's time for the record review. What well, record review? The roll call. We just finished the rate the record. And somebody has uh, rolled back the mail, so we must get at that. I will ask your assistance a little bit later in plucking out a few cards, all right? In the meantime, may I have your uh, name? I'm a legal machine. Mr. Fix-It. Diabolu Frank. Spotlight dances around the corner here on American Bandstand. Right now, here's a pop that's different from every other pop in the whole wide world. Watch. A Date with Patsy, starring Patsy Walker. This was published. I have no clue. When was this published, bro? A really long time ago, because it was definitely uh, giving advice on the proper way of hygiene and dating, and it seemed a little odd. Yeah, what was this book? It felt more like a manual, almost. It's, it's a series of just, no, it's just a couple, it, it's like a normal Patsy and Hetty book. No, because usually they're fighting, and this one, Patsy's bathing herself and giving you the no, proper... okay, you seem really fixated on the one page of Patsy bathing herself, yeah. which is tripping my ass out. It was, um, it was no, no, no. There was like one or two stories with Buzz. Then there was a Hay story. There was a Nan story. Yeah, the, and then there was the coloring book page. There was that was little cutout cool. artwork where you could cut out the, the yeah, but pages. Like that in, that's like in all of them. Was it? This one seemed a little heavier, though. I mean, especially with all the advice, all these long articles about how to dress and makeup mm-hmm. and, you know, what to do on a date. It, it was it was different than the regular Patsy book. Yes, Mac, if you didn't notice. I, I'm just saying. And the strips were shorter. They were more like little gag strips. They yeah, were, like, yeah they, were, they were gag strips. They were gag strips. What do we want to talk about? Well, here's the thing. As I've mentioned previously, to date, my favorite episode of the Marvel Superheroes podcast was the Patsy Walker episode. Because I just enjoyed you, the way you two were going at each other, and I enjoyed your totally sexist male chauvinist pig observations about the book and everything else. And I, I've wanted to revisit Patsy Walker, but so far it just hasn't worked out. Me and Mac, we got together and we recorded some stuff about some of the later issues of Patsy and Hetty, where they become a soap opera, and it was a different feel. And 
I was trying to find some way of getting back into looking at Patsy without it being like a big thing or, or trying to find a novel way of doing it. And so my thought was, well, why don't I talk to different people besides the three of us about Patsy, pull that together for a date with Patsy. But one of the things that happened is I specifically got this comic, A Date with Patsy, which I think is mostly reprints of older strips. I don't know if it's new material or reprints. I need to go check. But this was just a one-shot issue they did where I think they were just sort of testing the waters to see about doing this more advice-oriented, more magazine-type oriented mm-hmm. version of a, a Patsy book. I read the book itself and it's dry. There's just not a lot to it. It's definitely not as deep as some of the other ones we've read. I misplaced the stack of Patsy and Hetty comics I've got, so I couldn't actually send anybody scans or physical copies even of the books. So instead I ended up relying on stuff I found on the internet for the most part and we just talked to a bunch of people about stuff that you can actually access freely. Hmm. Not, I don't know, legally. I think these stuffs are still covered under copyright. I'm not sure. But they're out there on the internet, so that's what I had to do is I just went out and I talked to people based on this material that you guys can check out via links on the webpage. Okay. And that's that. Okay. It's here, my mystery day. Mystery day. Are you ready for your mystery date? Don't be late. It could be great. Open your door for your mystery day. Missing his teeth. Did you know your date is missing some teeth? Don't be scared, cause he's impaired. Open your door for... This is Siskoid. Patsy. You are probably the first person I've talked to about Patsy Walker that actually has a relationship with this character prior to us discussing her. Me? Yeah. I thought, didn't you? Well, yeah. I mean... Sure. I, I, you mean Patsy Walker? You mean Hellcat? Well, they're the same character, sort of. Yes, kinda. well, I, I know. I, I mean, I'm surprised nobody you've ever talked to has a prior relationship with Hellcat. Yeah. Because the field's wide open. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. Hellcat is a, I mean, I mean, she was an Avenger in the 70s. Right? Briefly, yeah. Yeah, briefly, yeah. but... Because um, Matt Mack just recently read those issues, because I I'd like told him about the issues when we did the Patsy Walker episode previously, and then he's since gone and read chunks of the Avengers run on Marvel Unlimited. So he kind of got a more of a first-hand acquaintance with the character from that point. Yeah. Well, I got interested in feminist comics in the last, uh, I don't know, five to ten years, and you know, Marvel was coming out with these quirky miniseries featuring various female characters, uh, Marvel Divas, and Marvel Girl. It had awful names. There, there was that. Patsy Walker was frequently a member of those casts. I really liked those comics. I really did. So it, was a, it was more, more relationship-y. I guess it was like Sex and the City, not something I would watch, but it was Sex and the City with superheroes dealing with Firestar getting um, cancer. and That's the uh, Models Incorporated one specifically, isn't it, that you're talking about right now? Which? Models Incorporated. Um, I think that's what could they call be, it. That's the one that had the uh, Scott Clark covers where they made it look like Vogue covers on each one. Um, I, I don't think I read that one, actually. Oh, yeah. Marvel Divas was, it was Herald's the one. Then? Hmm? Was it Herald's? Oh, I know Marvel Divas. Okay, that's the one with J. Scott Campbell yeah. on the front cover and Monica Rambeau. Yeah. And, okay, I know what you're talking about now. Okay. Yeah, it had Black Hat in a relationship with the Puma. And uh, then you had um, Firestar's Cancer. I, I'm not sure which ones had Patsy Walker in it, but Millie the Model and Patsy were in some of those little miniseries. And I enjoyed those. And then Patsy had her Patsy Walker Hellcat miniseries where the Avengers Initiative sends her out to Alaska as the only Avenger to patrol that state. Yeah, yeah. And it's, that was, it's on Marvel uh, Unlimited and it's definitely on our radar for the future. 
Yeah, that was a fun. That was a very fun series. It was very. It was like very weird because it was the, the plot. The gist of the plot had uh, Inuit gods coming into it, but the art was fun and the tone was comedic, but also paid respect to the old Patsy Walker romance humor comics, where it had a Dear Patsy column at the back. Uh, so it played with the whole history behind the character. That was a series that I once named as I wish that was a, an ongoing monthly. If a miniseries were to go to series, that was one that I would have liked to see more of. So I like Patsy Walker and Hellcat through those series. So it's a very recent love. I never really cared much for the costume necessarily. It's just like a yellow one piece and the mask was a bit odd. But in recent years, yes, I'd say Patsy Walker was a character I'd love to see more of. And you did because we got you a comic from 1947. Feature. Yeah. Lonely Hearts has always said that we wanted to cover Patsy Walker at some point, the I, older I comics. I can supply you some scans because I've got a lot of the stuff from the uh, the romance section specifically, which didn't happen until the mid to late 60s. Everything prior to that was comedy, but there, I've got a lot of the stuff from the soap opera era of the books. Yeah, uh, well, that's our holy grail. By the time you people hear this, I'll probably have got my hands on some. We're, we're planning an episode where we're just going to go into a comic book store and see just how easy, how cheap, how expensive. Is there a demand for it? We'll just do interviews inside the store. So we'll do something like that. Probably tomorrow, in fact. But yeah, it's it's our holy grail because looking for scans online, you know, let's just let's just be pirates here. And is it available somewhere? Are, are there collections of this that are easy to find and and download? Just you know, for research purposes or to cover on the show? I just haven't been able to come up with anything more than like the first two issues, which are on that golden age comics database for. Um, oh, are the first two issues of or like are any of the Miss America? issues or the Patsy Walker issues on there? It's the first I got there. They have the first two Patsy Walker issues uh, from 1940, whatever. Yeah. Um, but that's it. And no, it's so I, I would love to read those because I've done similar searches. I've been buying a lot of these back issues since I got fascinated by the character. And I don't see this stuff online. There's a story here, a story there. But it's not like one of these characters where you can go and get a zip file of everything from 1944 through 1960 or some crap like that. Really don't find this stuff anywhere. Yeah. You know, it's um, I don't torrent but i've looked just to see just to see if it exists just out of curiosity and i don't see that anybody's collected all this stuff into any kind of format that anybody could download to have any kind of substantial reading experience with well check out the digital comic museum they have a lot of uh, public uh, domain comics on there from the uh, golden age and patsy walker the first two issues of patsy walker are on there i'm going to check that out thank you for that yeah no problem. But yeah, I thought they weren't from the soap opera era. They were No, no. You know. Really, that only happens, I think it starts around 64, 65, and it's only the last couple of years of the two titles run. It's weird because what happens is you've got humor all the way up until the mid-60s, and Marvel had introduced a number of romance comics that were the straight-up soap opera, and then for some reason they canceled those books, but then they turned the two Patsy Walker series into soap operas, and then they canceled those titles, and meanwhile, Millie the Model had gone through a similar experience. You had Modeling with Millie and Millie the Model. Both of them had gone from humor to soap opera, but they managed to flip back to humor and lasted into the 70s. So I thought it was kind of a chip for Patsy that she didn't get that same opportunity. But instead she'd become a superhero. And In fact, the issue you've chosen to cover today could almost be, I mean, there's no way that in um, 1948 when this, that issue came out, there's no way they knew she'd become a superhero. I mean, that's absurd. But if you told me this is a, like a 19 1940s pastiche where they tried to do Patsy Walker stories in that style, but they made that today with an art style and a story style that 
dated back to those early issues when it was just a humor romance comic, I'd have believed you because there's like weird links to her becoming a superhero eventually. Really? It's peculiar. Mac, you got around to reading the issue, right? Yeah, yeah. Did you see some of the similar qualities there where she has this sort of slightly adventure superhero vibe to some of these stories? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially like that last story. Yeah. I, so especially like with the, the, I mean, I don't know. how Are we recapping? Well, let's, let's not, let's give it like a little pseudo recap. We don't have to go like total deep dive or stuff. Do one of y'all want to talk about the first story in Affair of the Heart? Mm, sure. Ah. Well, who, 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 whichever. I don't want to do any recapping. My, my voice is starting to, uh, starting to die on me here. <clears throat> Uh, do you want to give like a little quick recap then, Siskoid? There are a number of stories in the issue. An Affair of the Heart is the first one, and it's and all the art, by the way, is according to the Grand Comic Book database, all the art is by uh, except for the the two non there are two non uh, Patsy Walker shorts in the in the comic. Uh, all the rest, including the cover art by Al Jaffe, I suppose from Mad Magazine fame. Yeah, the the inventor of the fold in the, the fold in cover. He did, in the back. Uh, snappy answers to stupid questions, which they don't give writer credits on any of these sites, but I wouldn't be shocked if Jaffe wrote these as well because they have that sharp humor to them in the Patsy Walker segments. And he's right. still a contributor to Mad Magazine. My understanding is he's missed one issue since 1964. Wow. Oh, he's still? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, there is a, a Mad Magazine vi- or a proto- Mad Magazine vibe. Obviously, this is before Mad Magazine, but there is a sense of this. There are a lot of visual humor, a lot of little signs and little gags in the comic itself. So the first story is An Affair of the Heart, and it's basically about Patsy cheating on uh, uh, Buzz, her boyfriend, and then... Well, yeah, I guess cheating with a guy who turns out to be a con man. So it's there's this crime element in it, which is what I was talking about, where well, well, you know, she's not of, she's not Hellcat. But. Is that Patsy Walker is willing to perjure herself in defense of this guy who the big twist toward the end of the story is that he is a wanted felon just because she knows that Hetty Wolf is involved in a car accident and anything involving Hetty Wolf has to make her the bad guy and anybody else the good guy. And she just thinks he's so cute she's willing to perjure herself in court to get in with this fellow. I love that his crime was that he's wanted for forgery when he does some pretty heinous stuff in this issue. <laughs> for like forgery is what he's wanted for? Of all his other things that he's done? Really? Forgery? That's what they got him for? <laughs> well, especially because you've got that one panel where I kind of think that him and Patsy got up to some stuff. In the- yeah. <laughs> if he is uh, above age, and I'm pretty sure she's below age, then there's some statutory issues that need to be brought up as well. Well, and then does, doesn't he hook up with Nan too? Or did I misinterpret who's no, there? No, Nan is the angel on Patsy's shoulder trying to tell her, let's not take this to court. Let's not get involved in any of Hetty Wolf's nonsense. And then Patsy's just full steam ahead regardless. We also get a sense that Nancy is jealous of Patsy. I mean, she's like the best friend with the brown hair. So the Corky, the forger, Corky notices Patsy and takes Patsy's number and Nancy's going like, I'm right here. I'm here too. You know, maybe I maybe I wanted him kind of thing. Uh, so she's always sidelined compared to the heroine of the book. Yeah, it's weird is to it- me too because you've got two brown haired girls who have not completely dissimilar facial features and very similar body types and they're always right next to each other in the panels. In a later story, they're sleeping in the same bed together. After a while there, I'm starting to think that Patsy Walker is like Nan's Tyler Durden or something. Like, I think this whole <laughs> adventure may just be this fantasy that Nan had of what would happen if she were willing to perjure Hetty Wolf's latest boy toy. That'd be an interesting twist. 
but yeah, I agree. They're very hard to tell apart sometimes. And some of the stories, if when they're all, they're from the back, Patsy isn't exactly. She doesn't have orange hair like she does when she's Hellcat later. It's like an auburn. So compared to Nancy, they're very close. Yeah, the thing with Nancy, she's just sort of got this weird gray flat tinge to her brown hair where Walker's is a little bit more vibrant, but you really need a lot more distinction for characters that are going to be drawn that similarly. Yeah, I think so. So I, th- I thought this was an interesting story. I, I don't think it was quite as... <clears throat> obviously, the pace was different from some from the other Patsy Walker stories we've read. The art was good. It was definitely different, but it's obviously quite a bit older. Like, what what, what years of the, the other Patsy Walker stuff we've been uh, reading? Most what, what of was the Stanley we read era was the late si- uh, early 60s. Well, most of early it was 60s, like right. late, like 59 to 62, roughly. But I did love... There was the scene where, for example, page four, Corky's thought balloon of the phone number. that He's, he's trying to remember uh, Patsy Walker's phone number after he got it from her and as Hetty Wolf's talking to him it's just his thought balloon is a picture of the telephone with her phone number above it and then later on when he's calling Patsy you see the thought balloon of Hetty Wolf it's a devil that just says jealousy underneath it no so, actually that's uh, that's Buzz's thought balloon is that Buzz's? yeah because he knows that's on. Patsy's number that's right because he ran into the bar where uh, Buzz was right because <clears throat> he's like that's Patsy's number yeah, yeah you're right and, and that happens a few times throughout the story and so that's just not something I'm used to seeing usually thought balloons have thoughts not an image you know what I mean? It, well, it was very strange, but I, I love that kind of stuff. Very, yeah. very different. Well, what's funny is that got popularized in more recent years by Umberto Ramos in Impulse, who is taking it from manga. And this, of course, predates manga. It's that cycle again. Right. And, and there's a scene where Patsy shows up to the bar with Corky and Buzz is sitting there with his hands on his chin. And his thought balloon is his heart being smashed by a hammer. Like stuff like that. It's so... <laughs> That's so crazy to me, you know what I mean? But that's just, I, I, I don't know. It, it, was, it was very bizarre. But it's, a, it's a great I, I really visual like gag, it. and it's a great shorthand. To, you, you totally feel the emotion more through the iconography than you would through a, a heavy-duty thought balloon of a bunch of words. It's like You get the point much more rapidly and much more yeah, viscerally it, it, this it's, way. It's terrific. It's terrific. Yeah, which probably Al Jaffe writing this, that, that's a good clue to it because he's using visuals instead of where, where you normally you'd see words. Right. Yeah, and there is a manga this style or tone to it or things that we find in manga all throughout the book like uh, in a later story when the guy gets ignored by Hetty and he shrinks you see him shrinking yeah yeah, you know, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. those are the kinds of things you'd see on Sailor Moon or something where, where the emotion is manifested uh, visually and we know it's not really happening it's just uh, little tricks like that which are part of the humor of the book which I thought was clever that first page really gives you a sense of everything because the first splash panel it's clear that Patsy is kind of a flighty gal and then the very next panel is breaking the fourth wall and saying now readers all together what girl hates Patsy Walker very much and you actually see a row of girls at school desks reading the Patsy Walker comic and then the third panel is all these hands pointing at Hetty Wolf hates Patsy Walker and you're saying me I hate Patsy Walker and uh, that, that, that does a great job of summarizing decades of comic books just in those three panels and I, I just I, love I, how much Hetty owns it too it's like me I hate Patsy Walker. Oh, I, I will say though, I do like the Stan Lee version of it better, where Hetty and Patsy are sort of frenemies. You know what I mean? Whereas this one, they literally just seem to not like each other. They, oh, they're very hateful to the point of it being like illegal degrees of hatred. Yeah. So uh, I thought some of the tones were a little harsh. Well, I, that I thought, and you know, you've got the off-panel fight between Buzz and Corky, and then that leads into another off-panel fight in which Buzz accidentally pops. Patsy in the eye and she's sorting a, <laughs> a shiner throughout most of the rest of the story and it's like definitely in a humorous context I love it I think it's funny but looked at 
in today's outrage culture, that could probably have been a bit of an issue. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially since the parents don't seem to be bothered by it. Yeah, mom's just like, hey, let me go get a steak for your eye. You know, it's just yeah. not a big thing. Well, and, and, then, and, and the dad is complaining about the price of meat. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and before Buzz gets into a fight with Corky, doesn't he have a knife in right, his Right, he's yeah. kind of playing with a knife at first. Right, like, I was like, and what then, is going on in this book? Patsy doesn't get punch in the eye. She gets a bottle in the eye because it's like Buzz takes out a uh, oh, like yeah. Coke he bottle. A Coke bottle out, right? <laughs> yeah, it's worth noting he's a soda jerk. So when we said the bar, it's like the milkshake uh, bar. So yeah, it's, it's the malt shop with the soda fountains. But yeah, the guy's yeah. still got a big ass golden knife that he's wielding at one point to cut fruit. And then, I but I, I also like how there's none of the violence is on panel. They pull the censored curtain down with a hand actually coming out and pulling down a curtain that says censored. Yeah, Very so you funny. don't get the gratuitous violence and you see nothing but the after effects of the violence. So that would play well in today's culture. But in Marvel continuity, didn't Buzz become what, Mad Dog? or? Yeah, yeah and you can see shades of that here, right? Yes, that, that, I absolutely picked up on that. That's what I thought was hilarious. I'm like, man, he's already busting up his wife way back in the 40s. <laughs> So, so like I said, it's like if if this were done today, and referencing the you know the true Marvel universe elements, it would work. But it's just you know it's just a coincidence. Well, I think it speaks to the greater human condition. So it's just uh -oh. you know natural to go this way. I love this first story so much. It was such a gas. There were so many great gags. And like you said, it plays well into the later lore of the characters. So I was just eating it up with a spoon. I love that first story. Yeah, It doesn't take itself serious. I mean, there's no way the justice system works like this or ever has um, in oh, the court cases. Oh, this is a total uh, Marx Brothers court by the time they're done. Pretty much. <laughs> Even the judge has got screwball by that point and yes corky totally gets fresh with patsy page eight panel four it's like uh, they're in a car the car is seen from far away and then it's patsy going isn't it a beautiful why corky yeah well it's so. a running gag too and it's it's worth noting it is the third date now we know what that means yep. so first panel friday isn't it beautiful corky as they look at a mountain in the sunlight and then saturday they're watching a heart jerker movie isn't it beautiful corky and then sunday isn't it why corky so yeah very classy very well done Okay, so we're done with that one, I take it. I think so. I did think that was the best one, though. It was. It was. Yeah. It was very front -loaded. They put it up front for a reason. At this point, Patsy Walker is an anthology, and it's a spinoff from Miss America, where it was one of the lead features. So it, it's like the old, uh, like Superman number one, for instance, where you buy Superman number one, you're expecting a whole lot of Superman, but you're definitely going to get some other stuff in there, and you're getting multiple stories. This is a book that's about 50 pages long, so you're going to get a nice little variety here. The other thing I love about that first story is I think it's like the first page after you scroll down past the cover is an advertisement and one of them is for a rabbit's foot a lucky rabbit's foot which has completely vanished off the face of the planet when even when i was a kid in the 80s and early 90s you could still get rabbit's feet for toys at like arcades and stuff now there are no lucky rabbit's feet are nowhere how grotesque was that that we were walking around because that was a real rabbit's foot oh yeah oh yeah i remember putting a quarter in a gumball machine and getting a rabbit's foot eating a real rabbit's foot because they would have little, you could the 
nails were in them sometimes. Uh, oh, yeah, my, like and the fingernails exactly, were yeah. in them. Uh, and they just dyed them colors, and we had amputated animals' feet in our pockets for good luck. Unbelievable. And so it's just hilarious that I, I saw the advertisement. I'm like, holy shit, rabbits' feet are gone and is kind of disgusting and hilariously offensive. You know what I'm thinking back at? It's probably for the best that it's gone. <laughs> Definitely a, a victory for PETA on that front. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it only took, uh, what, 60, 70 years, but hey, they got it. Anyway, sorry. It was, I, I love looking at the advertisements. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and we crap. do get some keen advertisements in this one. The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, in which four guys talk about romance comics and about romances in comics with Siskoid. We're all uh, French Canadians here. Marty. In horror comics, there's often like this little, you know, <laughs> romance tinge, I guess. Okay. Bass. <laughs> we oh, just yeah. turned on him. <laughs> and yours truly, Fern. I'm very aroused. Featuring the overproduced wonder that is romance comics theater every episode. Dan, I knew it couldn't last from the first day you eyeballed me when I reported to work. It wouldn't matter if I washed in laundry soap and came to work in a burlap sack. I'd turn you on. And you have the same effect on me. I... I do? The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, available at lonelyheartspodcast.wordpress.com and on iTunes. We've had a comic book From the unpublished manuscript, The Other Silver Age Marvel Universe, a look at the teen humor crossovers of the 1960s by Tom G. Lammers. In this other Marvel Universe, crossovers weren't necessarily confined to the teen humor genre. Perhaps the most bizarre visits were those from stars of Marvel's Western comics. Yes, incredible as it may seem, Patsy Walker not only interacted with Millie the Model, Kathy the Teenage Tornado, and Linda Carter, student nurse, she also met Kid Colt Outlaw and the Rawhide Kid. Patsy's meeting with the Rawhide Kid was in Patsy and Hetty number 81 from April of 1962. As the tale opens, Buzz and Ron reading a copy of Rawhide Kid number 27, also published in April of 1962. Patsy and Hetty enter, and after a few comments about the boys being too old for comics, inform them that the Rawhide Kid is making a personal appearance at the Bijou Theater to promote his latest film. The group rushes off, and sure enough, there's the kid we know. White hat, blue double-breasted shirt, shirt sleeve garter, putting on a display of trick shooting. When he promises the group to drop by the soda shop later to sign autographs, the girls hatch a plan to impress the actor by dressing the way he'd want his girl to dress. And so they arrive in full Western regalia, looking like refugees from a rodeo. The kid, however, is wearing a suit and tie, Glad to shed the corny cowboy getup. He takes one look at the two Dale Evans wannabes and says, What's wrong with you two chicks? How square can you be? Your mystery days. Don't be afraid. He can sense it when a female's afraid. If he smells fear, you'll disappear. Open your door for Count Trumpula. My first exposure to the character of Patsy Walker was as Hellcat in issues of the Avengers or some other ancillary Marvel books. I knew just through general comic book research and uh, osmosis that she began as a romance character, that she predated a lot of my favorite characters from the Marvel age of the 60s, that she was around and that for whatever reason, I don't know why, but they just decided to pluck her out of obscurity and repurpose her as a costumed crime fighter. Uh, And I thought the idea was kind of cool, but never had that. That much interest. I thought the design of the Hellcat costume was cool, but beyond that, she didn't really pique my interest, so I never went back and looked into some of her comics. Have read occasional just sort of samples, knowing that you'd talked about her. I've read some, you know, brief Patsy Walker comics, and then looking at these two stories you had me. 
I completely separating itself from the subject. I, I liked the story of Patsy meets the rawhide kid. I think it was funny. Part of it is I like the idea of the shared universe even back then with these other genres of a romantic character or a character from a romance comic meeting a character from a Western comic. Putting those two together on a, well, it's not a date because it doesn't come to fruition, but I thought it was a fun story. I mean, is it a little bit of its time? It, essentially, it's about two girls gushing over a boy and then trying to change themselves to be more like him, trying to conform to be more like them, only to find out that that's not what he's interested in, so they get rejected. Is there a moral there or a lesson there? I don't know. Uh, would this be considered a progressive comic? I really don't know, but for pure entertainment, it was a fun story. I, I laughed at the punchline. It was okay. The second story where Hetty gets a new car, she gets a new convertible car as her birthday present from her rich father, goes to tell her friends about her new car and instantly tells her friend Buzz that he wants her to drive the car because she's afraid. Okay, let, you know, women's lib take one giant step backwards, perhaps. But it's kind of funny. It eventually involves them going out on a date, Hetty and Buzz. They they get stuck in the rain and the they can't get the convertible top up, so the car is ruined. Meanwhile, you've got Patsy and three other guys driving around in Buzz's old jalopy, and Patsy is the one doing the driving. And I thought that was actually pretty cool, that she is with three guys and she's the one with the keys, and she's the one being proactive in the literal driver's seat. So there's a weird little bit of distinction there that one girl's, oh, I'm too afraid to drive. Let me give the keys to my boyfriend because well, that's actually, something it was that Patsy's do. boyfriend that she was using the car to steal away with. Oh, was it? Yeah, Buzz was Patsy's boyfriend. Eventually, her husband. Oh, I and, didn't even uh, pick up on that. What one of the traits of these stories is that Hetty's always trying to win Buzz away from Patsy, and okay. so the fact that he's got this jalopy with wolf wagon written on the side, which <laughs> to me is equivalent to Leonardo DiCaprio pussy posse in for yeah, 1981 yeah. term. He wants to drive the new convertible. So even though he's not going to have an interest in Hetty, ultimately, for Hetty, it's a win because she got to steal Buzz away for a little bit. But of course, as usual, she gets her comeuppance when it starts pouring down rain and he can't work the mechanism to bring the top up. Right. And they're stranded and then they end up having to ride on the roof of the jalopy during the storm. So, Which doesn't really uh, make sense to me because their vehicle was still drivable. If they're going to be on the rain anyway, they might as well just continue to drive the convertible in the rain. Yeah. And they were like towing the convertible with a piece of rope tied to the fenders. Oh, did it break down? Okay. My bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Probably because they couldn't get the top up and everything got soaked on the inside. I don't think that's how cars worked in 1951, but we'll go with it. <laughs> We'll they, did, they didn't have the complex electronics. So. Well, this was one of those newfangled models. It probably flooded the aux port and they couldn't plug in their iPhones to play music. And, you know, what's the point of driving at that <laughs> exactly, point? Exactly. That's right. Yeah, they were singing along in the jalopy at the end. So, but yeah, it would yeah, be entertainment exactly. value. That's really most of my experience with the character. It's not a lot. I like her. I like the idea of her as a romance comics character. And I really like the notion of after years, if not decades of obscurity, plucking her at random and repurposing her as a superhero. Now, thinking about her role in Jessica Jones, I loved her, and I liked her right from the beginning. I liked the actress that they got at Rachel Taylor. So yeah, I, I liked her. I remembered her from the first Michael Bay Transformers movie, where she played a cyber hacker computer genius. I'm sorry, Michael Bay, but there are women in the tech industry, and not to cast aspersions, but most people in the tech industry look more like me, regardless of gender, than they look like underwear models. Whatever. I, I liked her in Jessica Jones. I thought it was cool that she was 
this former child star that had the, even though they called her Trish because nobody's named Patsy anymore. It's the same thing on the TV show Arrow. They call Black Canary Laurel because nobody's been named Dinah in the last 40 years. They gave her this past that she was in these comics called Patsy, but now she's kind of grown up beyond that. She's got her romance dating advice column. She's studying Krav Maga and all of these martial arts forms because she never wants to be a victim of abuse. And she's a very proactive character. I really like what they do with her. I hope they take her beyond that. I hope she's in the second season of Jessica Jones. I hope she's in the Defenders. I think there's a lot to do with this character. The character in the comics is not the character on the show. No, no. But the backstory and the meta text of the character is there and in fact if you recall i think in one of the early episodes of jessica jones she has a stalkery fan yeah a guy who tried to get her to like sign his comic yeah and that was an actual comic book cover for some reason they went in there and they gave it a new logo i don't know why they felt the need to do that but that was an actual 40s 50s era comic book cover i think it was a miss america specifically but yeah i I love that meta text and that's something that was a part of the character for much of her history by the way did you feel cheated that the rawhide kid in this story wasn't the actual Wild West character and it was in fact an actor who had a comic book adaptation that Buzz was reading in the story but he's not supposed to be the actual Western character from the Marvel comics. Oh, I didn't even make that connection. I assumed that it was supposed to be the same character but sort of like how the Fantastic Four lived in the universe where there were marketed Fantastic Four comics about them. I assumed it was the same kind of thing. Yeah, but well, you could take it that way where all of the comic books are based on Rawhide Kid, the actor who played is a Western character, but the problem is since Rawhide Kid is involved with the core Marvel Universe and Patsy Walker is involved with the core Marvel Universe, then it can't be that it's a TV show because he actually exists. So in my head canon, the Rawhide Kid actually traveled through time and briefly was an actor in the 1950s (laughs) and then went back to the old West again. That's how I make it work for me. That makes sense. I don't know a whole lot about Marvel's Western characters either other than like Two Gun Kid. I think Rawhide Kid had a series in like 1985, I want to say. He had a miniseries. I remember seeing yeah, yeah, it had nothing to do with issue. it. I just remember the first issue. It's like him with two guns shooting. Like, and like you just see like two guns coming from out of frame pointing at him and he's blasting those two guns. But I, that was really my only exposure with the game. I assumed it was the same character, but just kind of in the same realm where they're playing fast and loose with whether or not these are real world characters or characters with their own kind of fictional selves. Well, it's funny because the Avengers in particular have a history of going back and forth dealing with those Western characters. Mm -hmm. And if I recall correctly, the same story arc that introduced Patsy Walker as Hellcat also featured a trip to the Old West with him hanging out with those Western characters. So it gets very meta under those circumstances. I I just don't recall the Rawhide Kid specifically was in that particular Western team up. I think Two Gun Kid was. I don't know. Wouldn't shock me. It might have been. I think there were three. It might have been Kid Colt, Rawhide Kid, and Two Gun Kid. But I do remember seeing those Rawhide Kid issues on the stands in the 80s and completely ignoring them because I wanted nothing to do with a Western comic book. Mm-hmm. Like every other kid in 1984 or 5, whatever it was. I'm still kind of that way. If I'm going to go back and deep dive on Western heroes, I'm probably going to lean towards the DC Westerns. Yeah, I, I tend to like the DC ones with the exception of Red Wolf. Red Wolf's awesome. He's just to let you know, the car full driver story came from Miss America Magazine, Volume 7, Number 41, uh, which was actually the 74th issue that they published. It was from September 951. And the cover proclaimed that it featured the gay adventures of America's favorite teen-agers, Patsy Walker and Hetty Wolf. There were three Patsy stories in the issue, two Hetty stories, one combo story, and then Nancy Brown got a strip. I like that cover billing so much. And since we've had some questions about the exact nature of Patsy and Hetty's relationship, I had to bring up that cover. The gay adventures? Yeah. Now, the 
story that you didn't read, and it was the meta story too. That was actually taken from an issue of Kathy the Teenage Tornado, which starred the character Kathy Carter, who was created by Stanley and Stan Goldberg. Stan Goldberg would go on to become one of the more famous Archie artists, but his first pro artwork was on Kathy, and it was his favorite work that he did at Marvel. Uh, he'd previously been a colorist at Marvel. So anyway, they managed to produce 27 issues of Kathy between 1959 and 1964. The setup of the strip was virtually identical to Patsy and Hetty. The teens in the strip lived in Midville, sometimes called Midtown, as opposed to Centerville. I would say that they maybe skewed a little bit younger in terms of how they were played. They felt like they were a little bit less mature teenagers than Patsy and Hetty. But everybody in the strip was a wiseacker. They all were smart mouths. And I liked, there's a little bit of an ethnic quality because compared to the waspy Archie books where you would maybe have one person that was kind of snarky. I liked how in these Marvel books, everybody had a smart mouth. Everybody you knew had come from one of the neighborhoods. It, you know, I, I really think it's a lot of Stanley's Jewish upbringing comes up in these books. They're all kind of fun in that respect. The setup in this book was that Ricky was the boyfriend. Liz Hamilton was the brunette antagonist, but both Liz and Kathy were conniving, just like with Patsy and Hetty. Ace was a redhead with a flat top who was the antagonistic presence on the male side, and he was the one who was paired off with Liz Hamilton more often than not. Then they had this fellow called Speedy, who looked like Ringo Starr from the Beatles cartoon. Okay. And, and I can't remember the name of the character. I think it was one of the Hanna-Barbera's, but there was one guy that they had in the cartoons who had like a bulbous nose, and he had bangs that were so long that he didn't appear to actually have eyes, and that's exactly what Speedy looked like. I and, know who you're talking about. Yeah, but, yeah. I, I can't recall who the character is. Speedy had his own strip in the early issues. He was often paired with Fanny, who was a slightly heavier brunette friend. And then there was also a girl named Tulip Tinder, who was this platinum blonde who looked kind of like Veronica Lake, who I figure probably was the Cheryl Blossom dynamic. When you got tired of Betty and Veronica, all of a sudden Cheryl Blossom would show up. So in the 14th issue of Kathy from December 1961, they had the story A Visit to Patsy Walker. And the story acknowledges that Patsy and Hetty issue number 79 was on the stands and it also acknowledged that Kathy and her people had their own book as well. So they were all comic book characters and each group read each other's comic books. <laughs> Kathy picks up the issue because she had a fashion design printed in the issue. If you look at the actual comic books, readers would send in their designs for outfits and they'd actually list their name and their general address, you know, Brenda Smith from El Paso, Texas, uh -huh, you know, that uh -huh. kind of thing. And so apparently Kathy had done that and gotten herself published in an issue of Patsy and Hetty. Kathy's friend Liz gets infuriated because she'd sent a design too and it hadn't shown up yet. So she was so mad, both her and Kathy get on a bus and go to Centerville to complain to Patsy and uh, Hetty's faces. <laughs> so the first one they meet is Hetty, and Hetty and Liz, of course, get on because they're both the, the bitchy brunettes. Right. Hetty bleeds them to Patsy, and Patsy's, of course, nicer to the two, but she doesn't get on with Liz terribly well because she's too much like Hetty. And then Buzz shows up, and Buzz is like, hey, who are you, babes? Liz shuts him down and makes a point of mission that they're 16 years old. And Buzz is like, why aren't you in a comic mag of your own? And it's like, she is. And <laughs> it's already been acknowledged, apparently. You're not reading her book, though. Um, and what's interesting about that is just a few months prior in Patsy and Hetty number 78, Hetty had gotten upset with how she was represented in her comics. So she takes a bus to the publishers of the Patsy and Hetty comic. They never call them Marvel Comics. And she takes a meeting with Stan Lee and Al Hartley, the creative team on the book, and says, look, my daddy's going to buy your magazine and fire you guys if you don't start <laughs> treating me right. So most of the rest of the issue is Patsy with her thumbs 
people on either side of the page reading through one of the stories in the revised version of their book where Patsy is the loser and conniving one and Hetty is the great one. And then at the end of the story, Patsy's like, this is wonderful. It's so ridiculous. It's hilarious. And all of her friends are like, yeah, you're nothing like that, Hetty. You know, I'd sue that magazine for misrepresentation and make you look like a total buffoon. And so she sends a telegram saying, go back the way you're doing things or my daddy will buy your magazine and fire you both. Uh, and it's funny, too, because for some reason, Hal Hartley draws Stan Lee to look like Fred McMurray. I don't know why that would be his choice. But they're both like, <laughs> we thought it would turn out that way. We can't wait to screw with Hetty in this next issue. So the book was always meta, going back to at least 1961. Uh-huh. So anyway, in the Kathy strip, slowly uh, Kathy and Liz really eclipsed the rest of the supporting cast. They had seemingly a bigger and kind of stronger supporting cast than Patsy and Hetty. But they got downplayed, and slowly the characters were aged up toward the end of the run they actually made kathy a model and the last issue was a flashback to the origins of their friendship but what had happened the same month that kathy met patsy and hetty kathy also met millie the model in life with millie number 14 kathy decides she wants to meet millie so she goes through these needless elaborate schemes trying to get into her penthouse apartment and finally the doorman says you know if you just ask i could take you up there so she has a perfectly lovely afternoon with millie the model millie was really like the center of the marvel teen universe humor sphere she had the longest lived of the titles and the best selling of the titles she actually managed to make it into the 1970s and i think what actually messed her up is that she had a daughter or a granddaughter or a niece who had her own strip in the mid 80s and that aged millie up and out of being the central character and i think that's where patsy ends up winning out by default because even though she wasn't as central to all these marvel publications as millie was she managed to not be aged out of she was young enough to where she could still be a viable superhero so anyway hey Wolf actually had a guest pinup in the issue where Millie met Kathy. And in the same issue, Millie somehow fended off a Martian invasion in one of the stories. And then Kathy herself... Just because? Or? Just because. Okay. And then Kathy herself had a guest pinup in Millie the Model number 108 and then in Patsy and Hetty number 81. So he had all these early intercompany crossovers before the Marvel Universe existed. When you read both the Kathy and the Patsy and Hetty's, you can see how the teen humor dynamic plays into Stanley's writing on strips like Spider-Man. Because yeah, those yeah, characters definitely. relate to each other in a very similar way so so much of the breeding ground for what became marvel comic books was in these teen humor strips that flippant attitude and the conversational quality that dc never could really get down you know their guy was bob haney and everybody makes fun of the teen titans talking like beatniks in the mid 60s i don't know if marvel would have worked if stanley hadn't ground out all these teen humor strips and gotten that easy dialogue down which he applied to all of his artists and made guys who may have been inaccessible like steve ditko and jack kirby who never worked when they went solo but with Stan's easy dialogue all of a sudden these characters were very accessible and those guys had the biggest hits of their career because Stanley was able to mitigate the obstacles to people appreciating these artists that's true I mean you look at two of the earliest breakout stars from the Marvel age was Spider-Man like you said and also the Human Torch from Fantastic Four Johnny Storm had that same he could have fit in in one of these romance comics one of these Patsy and Hetty's he was a car aficionado. Yep. He had his own, you know, uh, refurbished old model car antique. Mm-hmm. Plus, he had the sports cars. Yeah, a lot of this stuff played out in the Marvel comics as well. And I think it's what gave them their hipper, younger vibe because they were trying to get teen readers through these other strips. Yeah, yeah. But also to playing into the Millie the Model as the core of the teen universe, too. In that first story where she meets Kathy, she makes a point of mentioning this is just the first of many crossovers. I'm going to meet up with Patsy and Hetty and My Girl Pearl and Linda Carter, student more, nurse, and many more. And ultimately, she did so that pan strip continuity that really wasn't present in dc comics was very present in these teen humor strips huh 
Wow. I, I had no idea that this era was so interconnected with the different romance strips. I kind of figured they were more compartmentalized. I hope to God one of these days Grant Morrison just comes out and says, oh, yes, it all comes down to that strip in Kathy <laughs> or that, that Patsy and Hetty where she's reading her own strip. It, it deformed my entire work. So. <laughs> Oh man, I pre-ordered his Wonder Woman Earth One. I just, I, I need to see what he does with that character. Yeah, he historically hasn't had a good handle on Wonder Woman. Of all the JLAers, I thought that his yeah. handling of her was the weakest, but he clearly has done his research. Well, he's, he's acknowledged that he didn't have, I mean, he's at least been upfront and said, yeah, I didn't get Wonder Woman until well, I really started working on this project. And he's been the most vocal opponent of the cinematic Wonder Woman since mm-hmm. doing that research because he came to the same conclusion I did that that character as being presented is completely at odds with William Moulton Marston's intentions. So yeah. my hope is that I'll read Earth One and it'll be like, oh my God, Grant Morrison finally gets it. This is the perfect Wonder Woman graphic novel. I'm not sure about that, but I do typically enjoy Morrison and I hope that he's managed to figure it out. I'm looking forward to reading that book. Hope so. Back to Patsy and Hetty. I don't do you have more <laughs> I, I don't really have, have <laughs> no, more. we can end that. That's fine. Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. What do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for magic. Black Canary and Zatanna. Together in one podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and I've got a thing for superheroes in fishnet stockings. That's why I started Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. Join me every two weeks as I celebrate the Blonde Bombshell and the Mistress of Magic in their exciting adventures published by DC Comics. Power of Fishnets, available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Don't listen to him when he says he's cool. Your screams and choking will be heard as such a throat burst. You'll drown alive in your own blood, but that's not the worst. You'll dress in your skin. First he'll gut you, then he'll climb in your skin. Please don't scream, he'll get extreme. Open your door for... Irredeemable shag. All right, it's one thirteen in the morning, and I still yes. got to recap the other Justice League comics. So, okay. what are we doing here? Oh, God, you poor bastard. Okay, so basically all we're going to do is, first I want you to tell me, have you ever had any past experience with uh, Patsy Walker or Hellcat? So, are, 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 you, are you telling me, or we're doing this? I'm, I'm asking you. Okay, so we're doing it now. Okay, I see. I'm sorry. Let's start again. Go ahead. <laughs> I already asked you. Bitch, all right. Um, not a lot. I, my run-ins with her were all post super heroic age. So I would have ran into her as Hellcat. So I remember when she was married to Damon Hellstrom and he had his own series for a little while, uh, with some real sketchy kind of artwork. You're talking about the Hellstorm, the early nineties series? Yeah. And I read, I read that series because I was a sucker and I'd read anything at that point. And I remember, I want to say she either appeared in there or she was referenced a lot and she was appearing. Where, where did she show up in the nineties? I can't remember because I remember reading her and stuff. Honestly, it was Hellstorm. I don't think she was in anything else. She had some sporadic appearances in the eighties thanks to her being a defender and Marvel having anthology titles like Marvel Fanfare for her. But in the nineties, they pretty much used her in Hellstorm for about the first year and then did away with her and forgot all about 
about her until the year 2000. That must be what I'm thinking of then, the Hellstrom series. And then wasn't she in Marvel Team Up as well? Marvel Team, which you talking about the 90s? The, the no, the old, I'm sorry, the old, the 80s version. Uh, this is the 70s and 80s version. I don't think she ever did a Marvel Team Up. Um, I, I know the really? cat. Yeah, the oh, cat appeared in one of those. You know, I used to get the cat and Hellcotton mixed up for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. So what about the cat, though? Did you know anything about her besides the Marvel team-up? Until your podcast, I don't think I even knew that the cat became Tigra. And assuming I'm even getting that right from memory, is that correct? No, that's right, yeah. Okay, I don't think I even realized that the cat became Tigra and that Hellcat took on the cat's old costume. I don't think I even knew any of that. It's very confusing and convoluted. Yes, yes. But I will tell you, I've always thought Tigra is incredibly sexy, and I wonder if it makes me a furry just thinking about her the way I do. I think you get a pass on that particular one. It's once you get down to Mamzelle Hepzibah, then we have to start looking at you funny. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> do you even catch that reference, by the way? No, but I just laugh to make you feel more comfortable. Okay. You don't have to do that. You can curse, too, so keep that in mind. Uh, <laughs> I'd rather you keep in, keep in there where I admit to have laughing just to make you feel more comfortable. I'd rather I you probably, keep that in there. I, I almost certainly will. <laughs> <laughs> I like to keep it real, yo. So she appeared in that, uh, is it the Avengers annual that you read, the Kurt Busiek one? I must have. <laughs> I petered out somewhere around the early Hickman era. Okay. And not necessarily Hickman's fault. I just got tired of all the reboots. So were you reading Thunderbolts as well? I, I don't remember. Remember her as part of the Thunderbolts, so I must have stopped at that point. Well, I loved the Busick Grummet. Uh, no, sorry, it was Busick and Bagley Thunderbolts, and then later on, Grummet took over for the new Thunderbolts. Yeah. I absolutely love that team. But then when they became Dark, was it Warren Ellis? Yeah, sort of, uh, Suicide, Squad. Suicide Squad. I stuck with it for a long time, but eventually just got out of it. So that means though, uh, the Thunderbolts annual was the from the year two thousand. It was Leonardo Manco did the art, and that's the one where Hawkeye goes to hell to try to retrieve Mockingbird's soul and instead he gets Patsy Walker's and then it jumped over to the Avengers 2000 annual with a Carlos Pacheco cover and Norm Bregafogel interiors where they gave you a background on the character and she had a solo adventure involving Damon Hellstrom Does okay. that I, I would I would have read it but it doesn't jangle any memories whatsoever okay. and you didn't read the Defender series that uh, Buzik and uh, Eric Larson did no aside I'm not from a lot of half remembered back issues from the 80s you know fuck all about this character huh pretty much yeah Okay. I learned more about this character in your podcast than anywhere else. Except that you've read three stories. I have. I have read three classic stories ranging from 1944 to uh, 1960-something and then some other undescribed date. Okay. So let's talk about those. You read the origin story of Patsy Walker from Miss America Magazine, Volume 1, Number 2, November 1944, by her creator, Ruth Atkinson. That was kind of a goofy story, huh? Well, sure. But it reads very much like an Archie comic. I, uh, I Or I should say a Betty and Veronica comic, actually. I have a 10-year-old daughter, and we spent a lot of time, not in more recent years, but a couple of years ago, reading a lot of uh, Betty and Veronica comics. She got very much into those characters. And it, we were y'all getting those great big brick digests they were charging like 10 bucks for? Well, sometimes we'd get the digest in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. But also there was a local comic shop that kept a lot of the old, like probably 70s and 80s Archie comics or, or from the Archie line in their cheap box. So we'd pull some out of there. So it was anywhere a mixture of any of those. So I'm seeing a lot of those at conventions lately for about a buck. I think that that's to do with more of the crossover audience. The audience at the conventions have changed so much. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are more women, more kids at those conventions than there had been in years. And I'm glad that they're stocking those books at a reasonable price. But you can pick up 60s and 70s stuff for a buck or two. You're talking about the digest or the issues? The actual comic books from the 60s and 70s. Okay. I love the Digest simply for the fact that they put comic books in the grocery store and have maintained it all these years. Now, are they still in your grocery stores? Because they disappeared from mine a number of years ago. 
Hmm. I know they were there as recently as a couple years ago or even maybe less than a year ago. So I'd, I'd have to check, but they were still around. And you know what? I, I've frequently said Marvel and DC are fools for not getting into the grocery store distribution. And I know I've heard it many times saying it would be far too expensive to get in there. Archie's only there because they cut the deal back in like the 60s or 70s and have managed to hold on to that deal all this time. But you know what? You do the loss leader, folks. If you want people reading your comics, you spend the money, you have a loss leader and you get in there. And that's what the, these comics do. My 10-year-old daughter knows who Archie and Veronica is because they see it in the grocery store. It's true. It's true. And uh, I remember Marvel especially was pretty good about doing those anthology magazines where they'd take reprints of a few recent issues and turn them into the magazines that would pop up in the grocery stores. But I'd stop seeing them in the stores. I only would see them in like uh, Barnes & Noble, the bookstores. I don't think they do that great on the newsstand. I think that Archie just had a different audience and they had much better placement. So they, yeah. they stayed around longer. The last time I saw Archie's in the stores was the Life with Archie magazines. Mm. And then those disappeared, and now I don't see any comics. They, they've all been replaced by coloring books. Mm. But the, the magazine market in general has been dying off. So I'm, as much as I want to believe that there's still a news audience, I just don't think so. I think that's one of the reasons why it's important to me that they start pushing their apps because – if you're going to have a new generation that's going to read this medium, this sequential art, regardless of what genre or what creators or what have you, it has to be digital because I just don't think that there's going to be an analog paper audience there for very much longer. Going back to where I was, we were talking about Patsy Walker, this first <laughs> adventure, and I was saying it reminds me a lot of those classic Betty and Veronica issues because you get two kinds of Betty and Veronica issues where they're friends and they're up against some sort of challenge. Or they're rivals and being completely bitchy to each other. Mm -hmm. And that's what Patsy and Hetty are. Completely. Now, as a Betty and Veronica aficionado, I'm really curious about this. It's obvious to me that Marvel got into the teen humor market. And obviously they were bandwagon hoppers. They were always borrowing from anybody who was successful. Obviously Archie was very successful because he's basically the reason why MLJ stopped bothering with superheroes. Because they were doing so well with the teen humor stuff. But was the dynamic of Betty and Veronica's frenemies already in place as early as 1944? Oh, I couldn't even tell you then. I mean, I haven't read the 1944 stories, although I got to think that I would suspect perhaps it was. And, you know, they're doing currently a new Archie series. They just relaunched it. I want to say Mark Wade's writing some of these and things like that. They're I setting know up Betty the Veronica, Veronica is going to be Adam Hughes. And then Mark Wade was writing the main Archie book. OK, they're doing a lot of the more modern style artwork, but. I thought a lot of that was being guided by the original stories. I may have made that up in my head. I don't know for sure. But there is a Betty and Veronica rivalry, it seems like, early on. So, I mean, I don't know. I can't tell if he goes back to 44 or not. I don't know. That would be a very good, interesting research project. Perhaps someone who's doing a podcast about Patsy Walker could look that shit up before they <laughs> ask the guests. Well, you know, if you can get somebody else to do the work for you, why wouldn't you? Yeah. I, I think the way, that's the know, kind we, of cunning displayed by Patsy Walker and Hetty Wolf, thus tying it into the episode. Well, you know, we totally dropped the ball on mentioning something else. What's that? Archie, about to be a major television star. CW show, Riverdale. I hey, He's been down that road before. We'll see about the whole major television star thing. I, I remember a few TV movies done a number of years back, and they didn't really go anywhere. But this is the CW, man. They know how to make pretty people work in a picture. <laughs> it is in their wheelhouse. I want them yep. to find a ginger that the girls can fall over. That's going to be a fucking challenge. Show what Cherry... Not Cherry Pop Tart, sorry. <laughs> Cherry Blossom. We can talk about that on this Blossom? podcast too if you like, but uh Do you want him to find a Cheryl Blossom? <laughs> 
By the way, I listened to a Cherry Pop-Tart podcast just in the last couple of days. What? Yeah, it was called Podcast Triple X, and a woman who I'm pretty sure was African-American, definitely affected it if she wasn't, covered the first two issues of Cherry Pop-Tart over a span of about 47 minutes. It was on the Internet Archive because I was in the midst of trying to uh, research a book that Dark Horse is about to reprint from an old issue Heavy Metal. And having researched it, I'm like, oh my God, I can't own that. I can't have that in my house. I would possibly be arrested because of that book at this point in time. But it happens to be that all these old heavy metals from the early 80s are on Internet Archive and you can flip through them. So I was just flipping through old heavy metals and listening to this chick talk about porno comics from the late 80s, I think they were. Was she pleasuring herself while reading it? Sometimes the breathing sounds made me wonder a little bit. I mean, those comics were invented for a reason. You and I both worked at comic book stores. We had them in a box and there's a certain clientele at the bottom. You want to hear something that's probably too much information? I actually stole my first cherry pop art from my mom. She liked to pick them up and read them. I'd be in, in Third Planet picking up Red Wolf back issues from the 1970s and my mom's grabbing the cherry pop tarts. Uh, but you know, hilarious. <laughs> so, so yeah. Guess which, guess which issue I bought. Which one? Oh, come on. I just said uh, guess. The one that was a Star Wars tie-in? Nope. Close. Uh, the Wizard of Oz one? Nope. Back to the Future. Oh, I forgot about the Back to the Future one. I don't think I ever got to read that one. See, that, she, go, she goes back in time and I think she ends up, I don't know, somehow giving birth to her. Or It's all about you know, creating your own grandpa sort of thing. Here's one. There was actually a story in which Donald Trump appeared or, or a pretty uh, close analog. Oh, and Future President Donald Trump. Yeah. And what's great about it is in the end of the book, he's sodomized by an NBA player. So there is some... Uh, Best comic ever. <laughs> so the past still gives presents to the future, apparently. So... <laughs> So we're talking. So, so you want to see if they can find uh, an attractive redhead to play Cheryl Blossom? No, so, no. Everybody loves redheaded girls. Okay. Archie oh, is a redheaded guy. Well, they're just going to go probably the route like they did with uh, with Matt Murdock. You know, it's a guy with brown hair who gets a red rinse. Uh, yeah, uh, our own Supergirl isn't exactly a blonde, is she? That's true. So, That's true. Yeah. So, yeah. Boy, she, boy, she's super cute. Yeah, she is. Uh, so yeah, so get, so finding a, like a Matt Murdock. By the way, do you know that they have a documentary out there where a guy is trying to bring up the prejudice suffered by redheaded guys? Really? There's actually a documentary where this guy is really upset at the prejudice faced by gingers. Is it called the Weasleys? It ought to be right. It's like he's touring the country and he's talking to people about their opinions and he's seeing there actually is legitimate discrimination against ginger males. And so I feel bad perpetuating that, but at the same time, uh, it's just so much fun, and I'm not one. <laughs> Oh, poor Richie Cunningham. But, but there's also the vicious cycle because I'm sure these guys put up with all this shit throughout their lives. But as adults, a lot of times they do get to be like kind of pissy. So that doesn't help. Guy Gardner. Easy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay. We're it's all tying together. Uh, okay. We can move on now, though. Uh, Miss America Magazine, Volume 1, Number 2. So, okay. Patsy Walker, another ginger. Sometimes. Well, she is in this issue. It's Actually, there's a weird thing with her hair because it was red in these very earliest appearances, and then for a long time it was brown, and then occasionally it would be black, and then finally they went back to the red again. Hmm. And it, actually, if you look at the cover of Patsy Walker number one, which for me, because I've gotten so into the character, for me, that's now like an iconic image of her falling backwards in the roller skates with the pillow strapped to her butt, and she has brown hair on that first cover. Okay. All right. I actually think that's one of the reasons why on the Daredevil TV show they had to go find a Miss America cover instead because they didn't have any early Patsy Walker covers where she had the red hair. On the Daredevil show? Yeah. Did you watch the – oh, sorry. I mean uh, uh, Jessica Jones. 
Oh, see, I haven't watched Jessica Jones yet. Okay, yeah. Do you realize that Patsy Walker's on the show? I did hear about that, yeah. yeah. And they actually do have a legit cover in one of the episodes. Oh, that's awesome. It's okay. very cool. The character is completely different. She's much more of a straight-laced heroine-type person than the character in the comics ever was. She does heroin? Wow, that's very forward-thinking back then. Hey, it's a pretty racy show. Um, <laughs> they do such a great job of referencing the parts of the comic book continuity you wouldn't expect to show up on a show like that, that it's hard not to get giddy off of it. You really do feel like the comics were this ancillary thing that the real person that's on the show was embarrassed by. All right. So anyway, that's completely off topic, though. So you read the origin story yes, of this character that we can't stay on topic with. <laughs> I, I got to say, first off, it is gorgeously rendered i mean just who'd you say the artist is on this Ruth first Atkinson. just beautiful the, the the girls are gorgeous the boy the teenage boy or young, younger than teenage boy is just adorable the, as the can kid be. brother mickey yeah who i love is a comic book character reading a comic book right there in the first issue that's like it, this book was meta from jump <laughs> the uh the mom's a milf you know it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's just a really gorgeously rendered comic i really really enjoyed it i love the first line saying that patsy is a real girl not a figment of the writer's imagination so i'm not sure whether they're trying to say she's based on someone real or they're just trying to convince the reader at home that this is you know the real deal i'm not sure i think that they're trying to say that this is one instance where an actual woman was writing the damned thing uh-huh. and uh so for a change these people will talk like real girls that's why i'm curious about the betty versus veronica dynamic mm-hmm. because it would be so awesome if that originated with ruth atkinson to have created created that template that was followed later on but i don't know anybody who was into betty and veronica so nobody can answer the question for me i'm pretty sure you could just find some of those 40s issues and just read them you know actually i think some of that stuff's in the public domain i ought to look into that i should be like a responsible podcaster and actually do the fucking job already or they might be on comicsology for like you know 99 cents an issue yeah comicsology So I, I love the family. I like the whole setup. I, you know, it really gives you that sort of teenage America feel. It feels like the Cleavers or something, you mm-hmm. know. And then the brother, it was so cute with the blackmailing. But really the story gets rolling when she meets – or when we meet, I should say, Hetty. Hetty is such a bitch. Just <laughs> such a horrible human being. And, and it works perfectly. Again, it, and I don't mean to keep going back to the Archie thing, but it really feels like, you know, Patsy is Betty and Veronica is Hetty is what it really feels like. But to me, Betty was always too nice, too sweet. And Veronica yeah. had limits, and I love how these characters are much more extreme. Hetty is really fucking just bitch out of hell, and Patsy isn't exactly blameless either. She does some nasty stuff, too. She's conniving as well. There's a strong adversarial presence between these two women that feels like a superhero comic because they're so at each other. You know, they're just, there's no holds barred. They're not fucking around with each other. Well, Patsy is definitely very mischievous, and she's willing to get into trouble, and I love the ridiculously overdramatic speech bubbles and things like that when she's just so woe is me, which is hysterical. But you're right. Hetty is pure bitch. When Patsy comes home and she's so terribly upset, and you know, again, it's all this just super dramatic, they say that time heals all wounds, life is too, too, too short, too, too tragic. Stan, what's the matter? It might be a tummy ache. I mean, just what the hell? Where is that coming from, Dad? You know, it's as usual, the parents are painted as idiots, you know, in any sort of fiction directed at kids is that the parents are always idiots and the kids are the smartest ones in the room. And that's what you get here. Now, I will say Patsy treats Buzz Baxter horribly. She is terrible to him. She treats him like shit, saying he's too immature, and then shows up at his house, fully dressed for the dance, and drags him out the door. Thank goodness he's just sitting around his house in his tuxedo, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh, poor guy. I'm really glad they set up the characters right there from the first story. You've got the parents, Stanley and Mary. You've got the brother, Mickey. And then you've got the cuckold, Buzz Baxter. (laughs) 
Because this fucker, I know this guy turns into a character called Mad Dog, who's an evil, misogynistic beast man. But after all the shit he went through in those comics, he's the nice guy. And he's so nice for all those stories. And you just know his brain is just turning into this violent berserker over the course of these stories. He has to because of all the shit he has to put up with. Now, this isn't the same Mad Dog from, uh, was it the Bob Newhart Oh, TV yeah. series about the, uh, a comic artist. I remember that one. It was sort of like a ripoff of Too Close for Comfort. Yeah, well, comic yeah, Comic strip yeah. guys, except he was in the comics. No, no relation whatsoever. Except that Marvel did publish a comic adaptation of that character for like six And that's years. what I remember the most of, actually, because it was flip side. Like, one side was all 90s extreme, and the other side was like almost like a Ty Templeton or, or a... Yeah, I think uh, it was Ty Templeton, or, or Parabek. It was either Parabek or Templeton. Very classic sort of Bruce Tim sort of style. And I do remember that the uh, Mad Dog was lactose intolerant, so... But so it's obviously a different mad dog. Different character. mad dog. Now and then the big surprise at the end on how the guy that this young high school girl of Hetty has taken to the prom is so old that he's actually completely bald and has to wear a wig. So how old is that dude? Is I mean he is in his late late forties, early fifties, maybe this guy? They like their daddy figures, apparently. Apparently so. Remember in Greece where you had the one pink lady who was hot for the TV announcer? Yeah. I think it was totally the same dynamic. Okay. Right. And what was funny, too, is you remember in Greece, she goes in for the kiss, and then that's when she realizes, wow, this guy's really old. So it's almost <laughs> the same damn thing. So clearly Greece ripped off Miss America Magazine, Volume 1, Number 2 from November I think absolutely did. And this guy, this guy, Swoon Strong, is an absolute creeper. Just totally. What a perv. There's a oh. lot of those over the course of the, these series, though. So I, that's just part of the formula, it seems like. Now, okay, I do legitimately, I am asking, how old are the girls supposed to be? It's vague. They're definitely high school age. Right. But we're talking 15 to 17, definitely not 18 yet, because uh, right. they eventually grow out of high school, but that's way into the 60s. So. Yeah, they're definitely even if, even if you do no the whole, that. It's a just, fun comic. It definitely has that same spirit as the Betting Veronica's where the girls are just horrible to each other. But I see what you mean, the distinctions between Hetty just being purely evil and also Patsy herself being uh, fairly much a troublemaker, too. You obviously root for Patsy. I mean, she's the protagonist. It's her strip. But she's not really a very nice person. And in the end, she doesn't win and, you know, quote unquote, win anything. She just screws over Hetty. And that's part of the formula, too, is often Patsy will have these spheric victories because she's not really a heroine in a lot of these stories. She's kind of just a less bad person. But she's still your point of view character and you kind of root for her. But I actually think that's part of what Ruth Atkinson brought to these characters that you wouldn't necessarily have with middle-aged male writers who did a lot of these other stories is that she's willing to let both of her characters be compromised. They're both not so good people, but they're also both people who have agency they're both acting against one another they both make choices patsy has her weak boyfriend that she can manipulate how she pleases i think that it is sort of a what's what i'm looking for i i think that this is a, a something of a writer proxy i think this is an opportunity for people who maybe are too nice in life maybe they're too good and they realize that it hurts them to live vicariously through these characters and the nasty shit they pull because they want to be able to pull that stuff and they can't so they live through those characters Okay. So it, it, well it's made. good girls' opportunity to be bad girls through their fiction. The most striking thing for me throughout the whole strip is the artwork. It's it's really nice, stunning. very crisp. It's sort of like a PG version of Matt Baker. Good looking stuff. And honestly, <laughs> I like it a lot better than Archie's broader, more caricature style of that time. I mean, I love the Archie stuff from the 60s and the 70s, but that 40s stuff just looks a little odd. And, and I very much prefer this style of artwork. And I think it's much more accomplished. I think that they're more realistic while still being cartoonish enough to be 
loose and animated and fun. And just really great to look at. I love her line work. Atkinson was fantastic. Well, that first splash page, you know what it reminds me of? And maybe I'm, I don't know nothing about no art, but I know what I like. So maybe I'm speaking out of line here. But it reminds me of, especially since this is a 1940s piece, it reminds me of the animated Disney Snow White cartoon. And I don't know how long it's been since you've seen the Snow White cartoon. I never actually saw Snow White. Okay. I didn't see it till I was in high school. And I was astounded even then at the level of animation. The, and I don't mean the movement, but just the art, the artistry in the character designs and how they looked. Snow White is drawn nothing like you're going to get a Little Mermaid nowadays or a Tangled or Frozen. Those characters are barely defined compared to how amazing Snow White looked in the way she was drawn and illustrated. And it sort of, to me at least, it sort of fits the same style with the drawing, the artistry, where as you said, there's sort of a realistic feel, but at the same time, it looks cartoony. The coloring of the cheeks and the girls, it just reminds me a lot of that Snow White animation. Yeah, that was really nice coloring on the book too. And you know, I really ought to check out Snow White because my recollection is that Walt Disney just pulled out all the stops on that one. He oh, put yeah. his heart and soul on that and a ton of money. And my understanding is it actually didn't do that great in its original theatrical release. It was only oh, years wow. later on re-release. So my understanding is that it basically it was soul-crushing for him that that didn't do as well as he'd hoped it would. And I don't think the level of effort ever went into any other Disney productions the way they did with Snow White. Hmm. Wasn't it their, was it their first full-length colored animated one? I, think? I, I believe so. And I think that he wanted to show that animation was more than just some kid fair at the beginning of a movie that it could be a right. movie unto itself. So he was trying to prove the very medium itself with that movie. And when it was a success, was so unsuccessful or just, you know, because I think it lost money if I remember correctly. Wow. The first time it came out. And he just never tried in the same way with any of the other movies after that. Hmm. I think it was, uh, what was that process where they would film a live person? Rotoscope. Rotoscope, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think they use rotoscope in that too. Yeah, I don't care if it's a cheat. Rotoscope looks so good. Dude, yeah. fire and ice. Mm, oh my gosh, I haven't <laughs> thought about that movie in a long time. <laughs> but gorgeous, so fantastic. It looks The fluidity is so grand. And like I know a lot of people see it as a cheat on the animation, but not even well, CGI it, it, captures the human form as well as rotoscoping into my mind. Well, is it really that different from what they use nowadays with the green suits and all the ping pong balls? It's and- in no way different, except it's a lot more time consuming than that, I believe. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. nobody wants to deal with it anymore. But there's a great artistry to that. And I, I we're never going to have that again, I don't think. I don't think it's yeah. possible. There's just not enough manpower. There just isn't enough money. There just isn't enough demand. So you just have to appreciate those original works. Yep. come in all shapes and sizes coming soon from the fire and water podcast network it's digest cast a new show dedicated to our beloved pocket-sized treasures from that bygone era of the 70s and 80s hosted by the fire and water podcast team of robin shag and we'll be joined from time to time by special guests it's digest cast because big things come in small packages coming soon to the fire and water podcast network So the second story is Who's Haunting Whom? In this one, Hetty decides to form a sorority almost for the sole purpose of excluding Patsy Walker and Nancy Brown from it. But once Buzz confronts her and she has interest in Buzz, she's like, no, 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 no. It's not that they can't be 
in the in the team, they have to prove themselves with an initiation. They're kind of cowardly, so that's why they aren't part of the sorority yet. So the girls decide they're going to buck up and do whatever they have to do to get into this thing just to show up Hetty. Hetty's going to take them to a haunted house and screw with them. But Patsy's younger brother, Mickey, overhears, and at, being a good little brother in this instance, he runs and tells Patsy and Nancy so they can at least brace themselves for it, and they actually bring in Buzz to kind of help him out a little bit. But they start going through the haunted house, they're having to do it blindfolded, and they've got, you know, the kind of stuff you'd have in a haunted house, skinned grapes and spaghetti to make people think you're walking through entrails and eyeballs. But Mickey and Buzz turn the tables on Hetty and scare her by appearing to be ghosts. She runs into a bucket of ice water that she'd set up with the intention of thwarting her frenemies, and ultimately it ends with Patsy and Buzz laughing at Hetty, who's got a cold immediately, and they dance the night away in the so-called haunted house. Pretty standard stuff. It's got to be a pretty standard trope, right? I Where... expect so. I'm sure that this has been a basic story for a, quite a bit of tales uh, over the years, especially in those years. Where Hetty Wolf, her, her own uh, trap, comes back to bite her and she gets her comeuppance. Well, really, that's the main distinction between the characters is Patsy, and at this point at least, is that Patsy and Hetty are essentially flipped sides of the same coin. Nan's the only one that's more reserved and a little bit more reasonable. But those two are at each other pretty consistently. They're Neither one of them are, are show any fidelity to any males in the strip, even though Patsy always ends up with Buzz at the end of these things. Uh, and they're both conniving. They're both kind of nasty. And it's just that Hetty's the one who always comes out on the bad side of their conflicts. In fact, I think Patsy's jealousy is really her worst trait because my reading of it is that Buzz is friends with Hetty, but they're just friends. Even if Hetty, you know, tries to break them up, he treats her as a friend. It's like, well, I'm just gonna go. Um, it's it's like he doesn't understand why the girls are are shitty to one another. You know, he's not trying to get into Hetty's skirt or anything. And it's Patsy who sees it that way because Patsy doesn't trust Hetty. It means she doesn't. You know, she becomes jealous, even though Buzz would probably never do anything. Well, Patsy's. Right. A- an obvious big time cheater she just hooked up yeah. with corky in the first story and you know how it is the worst cheaters are also the most jealous about their lovers right they project their own failings onto the other people buzz's hair is really interesting in these stories because he's got this bizarro superman spit curl but yep. it's like too robust and his hairline especially for a teenage lad is a little bit too far back so he has this bizarre mutant cupid doll head that makes him look like no other character in the strip he's very distinctive but he's kind of cute and kind of grotesque at the same time. Yeah, it's almost like he's got like a super exaggerated widow's peak and then he let the widow peak grow out into an S-curl. It's very strange looking. (laughs) I like that as part of the initiation, the so-called initiation, one of the things is that there can be no dating during the the whole pledge process (laughs) as a way to prevent Buzz and Patsy from going on dates and then Buzz has to take Hedy to uh, some concert. He's already bought the tickets. This is the kind of weird shenanigans like a dating detox enforced. Yeah, she's like, oh, did I hear something about tickets? I guess I'll have to take them. Right. (laughs) But I I think really it's Patsy who's misbehaving in in these things. I mean, Hedy is obviously a right bitch. You know, (laughs) screwing with Patsy and and poor Nancy was just, you know, by association getting screwed. Let's create a sorority that only exists to keep these two out. You know, we're never going to do anything. It's just about creating a club that they can't be in it. She's a dose. But still, it's Patsy who always seems to me to be reacting badly to these things. That seems more specific to this early era, Patsy and Hedy, then. Because later on, it it doesn't quite uh, work that way. These are the early strips. They're still kind of defining the characters. And they're they're very short, typically. They're uh, roughly seven pages, sometimes less. 
uh, one of the strips in this book is only four pages long. So you're going to lean heavily into basics of characterization. You're not going to get too deep with it. This girl hates this girl. This is the one who's going to come out on top. This is the one who's ultimately going to be the loser. And then one of them has a friend. So you're going to keep it simple under those circumstances, I think. Yeah. But, you know, she turns to violence. There's uh, when Hedy scores the tickets, Nancy has to stop Patsy from attacking her physically. Uh, and then Buzz goes off to the concert with Hedy and he's all he talks about is, hey, why are you so uh, mean to Patsy? So he's being loyal, at least. But it, it's still a sort of Archie's cheating game kind of book. Both in these early stories, well, actually throughout the series, what, what I've, part of what I find refreshing is how little it has in common with Archie. Because obviously Archie is a standard bearer. The MLJ line was cast aside in favor of just pumping out Archie comics yeah. once that company realized that superheroes were on their way out and these teen books were on the way in. And it would have been easy to just completely bite the exact dynamic of Archie and port it over to these other books. But I like that these books have their own flavor. What's interesting, I think, throughout the run of the series, but it's more pronounced here is there is a bit of a mean-spiritedness to the whole series. There's some real aggression. There's some real clashes of personalities in these stories. I, I listened to the Lonely Hearts podcast where y'all were talking about Archie, and you're saying how ultimately they're all friends. They might have a spat, but by the end of the individual episode in a comic book, they've worked it out and they're friends again. That's really not the case here. It takes you know 15 years or so before Patsy and Hetty seem to be able to remotely stand each other and actually be considered true frenemies. At this point, they're just flat out full on bloodthirsty enemies yeah definitely but because structurally it seems to be we could make a case and say um it's Patsy Walker is what if Betty was the star instead of Archie? Everything turned around Betty instead of Archie. So you got a Betty and you got a Hedy as Veronica and then Buzz as Archie, if you will. But the actual character dynamics are different. And the humor is different and the, the thrust of it is different. And the, the way it, they turn into kind of adventure stories. Even this story, which is very much a straight war between two girls. It's high school drama kind of thing. You know, it starts with a splash with uh, skeleton ghosts and uh, like a Halloween theme. So it's got genre elements woven into it, which Archie's done on occasion, but in the normal Archie strips, that's never the case. It's high school hijinks. It's got its own feel for sure, its own look and its own dynamics. So it, it's not fair to compare it to Archie, but obviously if you're going to have teen humor slash slight romance comics, it's going to be compared to Archie. That was the genesis point for all these types of books. Right, they were trying to cash in on that comic's popularity. That actually brings us to the next story, Willie, Problem, and Paint, which is the shortest one. It's four pages. The character is the star of Willie Comics, which ran from 1946 to 1949 and managed 17 issues of America's Jolliest Juvenile. And it's basically a dumber version of Archie with a more jealous version of Betty named Jenny. There is no, to the best of my knowledge, because I haven't read any of the unfortunately named Willie Comics, um, Apparently, it's, it's mostly revolving around the misadventures of these two characters. Um, much of the book was drawn by Mike Sikowski, who would later be famous for Justice League. And right. basically, you had ideal comics for, I think, four or five issues. And it was Marvel's attempt at doing a Classics Illustrated or early Brave of the Bold type stories. When that failed, they switched to Ideal Love and Romance, which became Willie Comics. Willie Comics had his run. Toward the end, it became...
became Little Willie Comics, which isn't any better. In fact, it's probably worse. <laughs> and it was just for those two issues. <laughs> and then it switched back to Willie Comics for another couple of issues, and then it was finally canceled. You can see the, the trend chasing here, because what happens is Willie Comics has its runs when Marvel were putting out just an absolute glut of Archie ripoffs. Once the bad ones fell to by the wayside, of which I think Willie is one of the bad ones, they tried this next genre, the little kids comics. And Little Willie is not a young version of the Willie character. He's an entirely different looking kid. A bunch of these Archie ripoff comics became little somethings for a couple of issues, and then they either got canceled outright or turned into something else. It was all about that genre chasing, just trying to find where the dollars were going to be. Yeah. Well, this Willie story is pretty slight in any case. I mean, if it's you know representative of his actual series or his other stories, it's you know like a manufactured misunderstanding, and then you can see the punchline coming. This is much more in the Archie mold, if you will, short strip with a punchline at the end. This is kind of more like it. Yeah, and this yeah, it was, was garbage. Really, yeah, it was a one or two pager, <laughs> and they stretched it out to four pages. Oh yeah, it was yeah, way pretty. too long. As soon as the misunderstanding happens, you know that's what's happening. There was no surprise for me here. The guy takes art classes because he finds the perfect model. His girlfriend thinks he's hot for a nude model. It turns out that no, it's a pot, and then she busts him over the head with a pot for making her jealous. That's a decent one-page strip. Four pages. I'm done with this dude. But you get to see the girl cry. (laughs) And she also gets knocked over. I mean, he opens a door on her head. Mm. So this is a, a second story where a girl gets hit, accidentally hit by a man. He's just excessively stupid. And with her being named Jenny, I just kept hearing Forrest Gump in my head while I was reading it. It's like, Jenny, Jenny. It was bothersome. <laughs> Next. So, Are you going to synopsize the girl nobody knew? Absolutely not. Okay, so there's a two-page the, the text, text story. Um, I'm a comic book guy. I don't read <laughs> text in comic books. I'm here for pictures. I did not read the girl nobody knew. It's a two-pager. Did either of you guys? Nope. Yeah, I read it. You read it? Okay, so it's all on you, buddy. Well, I didn't know what you would want to talk about, so I just uh, read everything sorry. to make sure. I'm not going to go into it. Just to say that, as with the Patsy Walker stories, it's a detective story. It's a detective story, but it's about finding out why a girl is sad and then helping her out. So it's like a Nancy Drew mystery kind of thing. So it's not really important except to say that once again in this Patsy Walker comic, which is supposed to be about humor and romance, you're getting a tale of detective work and altruism, which is again relates to the superhero or her superhero destiny, even though she's not in it. Patsy Walker's not in it, but in this comic, there is also this story which seems to belong to that other uh, genre. So Patsy in Cheers for the Cheerleader, and this one, Patsy and Hetty are competing to be the queen of the cheerleaders for the local, what is it, a basketball team? Meanwhile, Hetty enlists a ice cream salesman to help sabotage Patsy, which is the sequence that Mac was talking about earlier where the character shrinks before her eyes because he's so uh, small to Patsy that she completely ignores him until she finds a use for him. Patsy does a pretty good job of sabotaging herself by deciding that she could do a somersault while practicing her cheerleading moves and ends up messing up her ankle. The doc has to come and check it out. But she's watching the game regardless of her ability to participate. Our little simple ice cream vendor fellow, Lemuel, is hawking ice cream and he sees Patsy and he's wanting to get in good with Hetty but he just can't do something mean to such a pretty girl. He's so incompetent he manages to drop ice cream on her back anyway so she flips over the guardrail and just starts hopping around like crazy and her dramatic display so rouses the team that they end up winning the game and awarding her the 
Queen Patsy prize while Hetty somehow manages to get ice cream dumped on her head. It's got a few nice moments, but it's just not up to the standard set by the first story yet, or the first two stories, really. Nope. And the ice cream guy is super creepy. <laughs> Uh, yeah. It's an odd character. I, well, at one point they show him thinking, looking at Patsy, going, gosh, she's scrumptious. Yeah, that's the like, creepy. Okay, this dude's officially shit. into the creepy zone. Maybe if we were wondering who wrote the stories, I'm thinking if Al Jaffe actually wrote the first one, which is the better one, the one with a lot more visual humor and gags and thought balloons. At this point, there are no pictures and thought balloons. That art style, it's still him, but the art doesn't have those gags. So it's like, maybe this is somebody else's script kind of thing or either yeah. that or you didn't put as much effort in it it breaks the style established in the first and again it's another Hellcat link because she's super agile and she's making all these moves oh she's somersaulting and yeah, yeah she's her dexterity is a solid seven at least at this point <laughs> which will be part of her Hellcat persona moving on we have another filler story Margie plays Cupid now Margie Comics was another one just like Willie Comics ran from 46 to 49 same years she only got 15 issues as America's Glamour Girl she apparently had a boyfriend named Ruji, which I don't think any human being has ever been named at any point in human history um, the artist on this one is a fellow named Morris Weiss who apparently he's actually best known for doing Margie, which is sort of sad. Um, <laughs> and the guy lived like the ripe old age of 94 as the Margie artist, so poor Oof. some bitch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And he's got some wonky anatomy. The characters have two big heads and some stout legs, kind of a Betty Boop thing going on. It's not bad. It's got eye appeal, but it's not Jaffe. Margie's book had the most tortured history. It actually started out as Daring Mystery Comics, the first nine issues, which was where many of the characters that were featured in J. Michael Straczynski's The Twelve came from. Laughing Mask, Fiery Mask, Fan Reporter, they all debuted in that. Also, Citizen V, the character that was popularized in Thunderbolts, debuted in Daring Mystery Comics. Then that book became Comedy Comics, which was a funny animal book. And then it became Margie Comics for its 15 issues. After that, it becomes Reno Brown, Hollywood's Greatest Cowgirl for all of three issues. Apparently, Reno Brown was a real person. She's one of only two Western actresses to ever get her own comic book, the other one being Dale Evans. And at one point, she was married to Lash LaRue, who you may have actually heard of. And then finally, the last 19 issues of this book were Apache Kid. So what is that? Five different books that this one volume encompassed of all sorts? of genres it's amazing that they kept sitting this into the licensing office the circulation office and they just kept rubber stamping this damn thing regardless of what the content of the book was wow so, man I'm so, i still feel bad this guy was only known for this book <laughs> remember me i did margie comics what the fuck are margie comics if you read comics between 1946 and 1949 margie comics was like the 17th best-selling archie ripoff so Margie is trying to get two of her friends to get back together again. If they've been fighting, they end up getting mad and yelling at her. So then her simpleton boyfriend comes up and tries to have his relationship with Horton's worked out. And she just straight up socks the guy, leaves him with a big egg on his head and a black eye. Lots of violence, man. A lot of domestic abuse in these stories. Yeah. Lame. <laughs> This story lame. was whack. My, my only note was my no, my, my only note was lame. 
yeah, it's the weak stuff. I do they, like how he kind of plays with some of the panels, though. How do you, oh, you like the weird wobbly angle when the the one guy is shaking his fist at Marge? Shaking his fist around? Yeah, that's really bizarre. Their body parts will kind of go between panels and stuff. It's very, very strange. Yeah, like the one boyfriend, his butt is sticking out into the panel margin for some ass reason. Yeah, yeah and, and also it's later like on his head, cool. his head's out in the panel margin. It's very strange. Yeah, and, yeah. and it goes full bleed, too. I mean, there's images that actually go all the way to the end of the page, which is pretty uncommon. Yeah, but uh, other than that, it's completely forgettable. Yeah. yeah. I don't dislike the art, but the story is... It's not great. Yeah. It's really not great. It's filler at the back end of an anthology is what it is. When you get back to the next Patsy story, though, you realize the art is far inferior. Yeah. And let's address this now, too, because I kept meaning to bring it up. Al Jeffy's art in these is really gorgeous. Yeah, it's Uh, really nice. The ladies are beautiful. They're not over-sexualized. They're definitely easy on the eyes. The storytelling is excellent. I like the male characters as well. There's something about the inking, his brush, like especially on a lot of the characters' hair is very lush. And there's just a fullness, I think. The anatomy can be a little bit dicey at times i like the way he draws hair especially he's got a nice variety of clothes he, the various patterns the dude put a lot of work into the artwork on these yeah. things for me it's the clothes all of the fabrics move around there's motion to the fabrics like if you look at corky's pant legs in the first issue they've got folds and wrinkles and it's the same thing with her like if you look at the first page of this last story the burglars who i guess you know whenever we do the recap we'll get to but their clothes or they, they, they hang off them and her dress is kind of wafting as she's walking into the room. The motion is something you don't see a lot of in Wadi. And I like the expressions. The faces are drawn, especially the women, with very few lines. They're yeah. very, very simple. But he finds a way to make the eyes or the brows are slightly different one from the other so that you can see expressions. You can see what they're thinking and feeling, even though there's just a collection of very simple lines, basically. It's like the eyebrows and then the opening of the mouth, and he's able to convey the emotion. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, no, really. And in that last story, The Weaker Sex... Well, I mean, does Zach need to address some shop by mail before we go? Oh, sure. Let's shop by mail. Two pages of vintage ads? Two how pages, that, of, yeah. yeah I, how about that device I, to make buttonholes? I've been, man, I've been needing a buttonhole for a while now. I'm trying to decide which one I would buy. Hmm. I will shut it down on the rain cape coverall. He's like wearing a tarp. <laughs> and I think he's holding a gun like he's hunting. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's a strange. It's like um, an upright sleeping bag. With <laughs> yeah. But like it's clear at the top. It's very sky mall. Yeah. I don't need a flying helmet because I have one. Well, I like the little <laughs> pocket abacus device that they've got here for $2.50 that you work with a uh, proto stylus. Arithmetic made easy. It doesn't look very easy. Where is that one at? Just under Song Poems Wanted. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what the hell is that? These days, I think. Yeah, yeah, the pocket abacus. Very strange. Well, I guess I... I am genuinely curious about the secrets behind the comics book they advertise. I know, right? Yeah. With the cameo the appearance cap? by Captain America? Yeah. And yeah, other yeah. characters too ho- tiny to discern? Ooh, I think that's the blonde phantom in the back, isn't it? Yeah, that could be. I need a mail nightgown order. and a mask. Yeah, I need a mail was- order a, a magnifying glass, but I'm pretty sure that's who that is. Yeah, then there's one that one-legged Archie. <laughs> Uh, that's what it looks like. And then probably Patsy would be the Could middle be. figure. Maybe? It looks like Archie's about to kick Patsy in the ass for stealing his formula. That's what's going on there. <laughs> I don't think that's Archie. That's got to be – who is that other lame guy? And it's uh, it's got to be oh, Willie. Willie. Uh, I don't want to know what Willie's doing dangling behind her. So Yeah, that's bizarre. Silver bells hanging on a string. She told me it was my ding-a-ling-a-ling-o. 
The next story is from Nellie the Nurse, number 14, published in August of 1948. Nellie the Nurse. Well, see, I I mentioned this because I'm serious now. There is a Patsy Walker-verse. There's an entire universe of these teen humor characters, and they all intermingle with one another. They all appear in each other's books. It's a whole universe out there that's part of the Marvel Universe, and nobody's ever tapped it. And Nellie the Nurse is part of that universe. Not even the the models series in the two thousands or whatever that was. Models models played with that, but nobody's ever really. I mean, I, I was reading an article online that somebody wrote. I stumbled upon this on my own, but it was nice to see it reinforced by somebody else's research. How the Marvel universe really comes out of these teen humor books because they were what was selling in the late fifties before Marvel realized that DC was making so much money off superheroes and jumped onto that bandwagon. Their main business were these teen humor books, and because they're all about relationships, they had relationships relationships with each other across the books. It was a big deal when these things would cross over with one another. They would see, if not a sales spike, at least a spike in reader interest. Mm-hmm. And, and it makes sense. You want to see this character that you're into interact with this character and they're just talking and they're doing stuff together. There's something inherently girly about that. I mean, one of the big things about the Marvel Revolution was they brought soap opera dynamics into the superhero universes and brought continuity and brought characterization. And that had to come from someplace. And where it came from were these teen humor books. If you need a real-world example of the power of these crossovers, look no further than the Fall Guy and MedStar 1. The melding of the two different universes coming together was a big deal. People got on board with it. Hey, it was a big event when the Golden Girls and Empty Nest, and wasn't another show, they all got hit by a hurricane at the same time on the same I night. Thought, I thought Empty Nest was a spinoff of Golden Girls. It was a spinoff of the Golden Girls, but they're still obviously inhabited the same universe. Okay. And I'm all sure right. you've heard about Dwayne McDuffie's universal theory of television where everything goes back to St. Elsewhere, and therefore everything is just a dream because everything connects <laughs> to that one show. St. Elsewhere did pick up on a lot of different things, didn't it? I guess mm-hmm. that could work, yeah. <laughs> So was the Patsy Walker, you're talking about the Patsy Walker verse, was Millie the model part of the Patsy Walker verse? Yes, they were, and they had a crossover. Ah, uh, and actually, I think what happened, I never have read the one where Patsy and Millie meet, at least not in that time frame. They've met in the modern Marvel comics. I was going to say, are we talking in classic or are we talking more modern? Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about the, the late 50s, early 60s stuff. One of the big connecting points was in an issue of Defenders. Patsy goes and meets Millie, and that was, I think, Millie's introduction to the mainstream Marvel universe. Because prior oh, to wow. that, the only ones that connected was Patsy and Hetty were in the first Fantastic Four annual watching the wedding of Reed and Sue. <laughs> That's awesome. There was actually a character named Kathy, and she's the one who went and met Millie the model. And then at some point, Patsy and them met up with her as well, but I, I've never read that specific story. But Kathy met Patsy and Hetty. You are a big fan of Animal Man. And yes, so I, I, I know you love that moment where Buddy looks up at you and says, what does he say? I, I see you. He says something. He's, he acknowledges he's looking right at the reader and he can say, I can, like, I can see you reading us or, or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a Patsy and Hetty story where they have a fight with Kathy and her supporting cast. And then there's another story over the comic books. They each have comic books and they read each other's comic books in their different towns. Mm-hmm. And so they have issues with how they're portrayed in the comics. And then at one point, Hetty goes to Marvel Comics and complains to Stan Lee and Al Hartley, the guys who are creating her book, about her portrayal in the comics. So they change it to where they switch the roles and Patsy is the evil conniving one and Hetty is the more innocent one. Oh and you gosh. actually see Patsy's thumbprints on either side of the page as she's reading that comic book about the inversion of their character types. That is hysterical. Yeah. That is really, really funny. So did Hetty make her way into the real Marvel Universe at all? Like for any consistent like that? I mean, did she become like, I don't know, Lady Viper or something like that? Or You know, she really deserves her own superhero costume. I kind of picture her wearing Super something kind of like... Super villain costume. Yeah, true that. I kind of picture her running around like the Baroness. 
Or at least that's how I like to imagine it. Um, but she is actually for becoming the main adversary of Patsy Walker in her current series that Kate Leth is doing. Wait, Patsy Walker has her own current series? She has her own book. Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat, is being published right now. Oh, and Hetty's the main adversary? Yeah, because what happened is they're still publishing Patsy Walker comics in the Marvel Universe. They've actually just brought them out in nice archive editions. Uh-huh. And Patsy hates those comic books being in existence, and she wants it to stop. But when she died in the 1990s, the rights were signed over by her mom to Hetty. And so Hetty is continuing to publish the books in spite of her, you know, in spite to spite her. Oh and so, uh, uh, so Hellcat <laughs> is loyaled up with She-Hulk, and they're trying to fight to get the rights back. That's hysterical. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's get let's keep going. Let's go into this next Patsy okay. Walker. Okay. So Nelly the Nurse number fourteen. That's the one about the roller rink. Okay. So earlier you mentioned a cover to Patsy Walker number one. I thought you were talking about something to do with this issue, but I guess I, I got a little confused. Either way, the first splash. I want to. I don't want to say splash page because it's only like three quarters of the page. But the first splash of Patsy over her dad, who's taking a nap on the roller skates, is so strange. It doesn't really fit with the rest of the art in the book because she's so sexualized in that very first panel. And yet she's not throughout the rest of the issue. What is up with that? She's wearing the kind of skirt you have to shave for, and I don't mean your legs. <laughs> yeah, it's so peculiar. It's Pop rates his skates. I don't know what to make of this. The anatomy is a little wonky, yeah. but it's still – I don't know if it's that I enjoy it because – no, I enjoy it because she's freaking hot. That's why I enjoy it. Well, she's she's very voluptuous in it. Mm-hmm. In this particular image, she's very voluptuous. She's got lots of curves. Her skirt, as you said, is ridiculously short. She's bending over, trying to wake up her dad, which is also a little kinky-ish. Um, yeah, he's, he's sleeping on a bench at the roller rink with a pillow and everything. Well, just the whole symbolism of her waking up her daddy. Well, well the way just... that her breasts are clearly swaying yeah. because they actually have a, like a pendulum motion going on where they come to points like Bruce Tim draws Batgirl. Not that I ever noticed. Uh, <laughs> and, and another, it, another redhead, by the way. And, and she's wearing a kind of skate have, I've never seen before red, that laces up almost to the knee. Do you have the same redhead fetish I do? <laughs> I like I, girls. They're all oh, okay. pretty. The blondes and the redheads and the brunettes and the brown hairs. They're all so pretty. I have a really bad redhead fetish. Growing up, I had the biggest crush on Jean Grey and Madeline Pryor and even on Barbara Gordon. That extended into Hawkwoman later on, and and I am now married to a gorgeous redhead. So I I think all of that led me to this point in my life. So My first bare boob in the wild non-family member was a redhead. (laughs) (laughs) You share too much. You share too much. I, I can't remember what – I think she was pushing me on my bike and, you know, the, the swoop of the shirt just kind of went down a little further than they were supposed to. And I was like, did I just see one? So, yeah, it was it was cool. Okay. Formative years. Formative <laughs> years. So it's only that first image that's really over-the-top sexualized because the rest of the story, she's drawn – when did you say this particular one was? 48? Yes, just a few years later. And and no, I, I don't mean, think that Atkinson stayed on very long. I think she was only there for maybe a, a couple of years. It, it's not similar to the first issue because the art is not nearly as classic. But it's it's this cross between what we saw in that first appearance and a, and a standard fair Archie comic at this point. It's still much more lush of a line. Got that same 40s glamour girl look. Yeah. But obviously more heightened, but definitely more sexualized while still having that air of innocence at the same time. It's a really rich line, ink line. The figures are stiffer, but it's still attractive to the eye. And even though it does have some fetishistic aspects to it, I think that it's innocent enough to where it can be enjoyed on that level without that being too much of a distraction. I don't know. It's, again, the whole daughter, daddy, they're just – it's – 
it seems a little weird with the way they're they're interacting. Well, she, there. And she's and, a daddy's girl too. Uh, throughout the series, it's always her and her dad getting involved in stuff. Her mom is always sort of off to the side. At least in all the stories that I've read, it's uh, more fun to watch a guy go through pratfalls. And I think that you can only screw with Buzz so much before it seems to be too focused on one person, too bullying, too rough. So you have to spread the shenanigans around to more of the male members. And that was the other major male member. If you're gonna take. Patsy versus Hetty, at least as far as the, you know, the characters I've been introduced in the two stories I've, or three stories I've read, the only male characters, you know, Hetty doesn't seem to have a steady bow. So you can't put Buzz against Hetty's boyfriend. So you got to put her against the other male. So you put the two dads against each other, which makes sense. Well, it also helps, too, that it's totally Mr. Lodge as her uh, sugar daddy. Her, oh, her yeah. So it's the same kind of attitudes. It's like, oh, that Walker guy is going to show me up. I'll do whatever I have to do. And, of course, they're both idiot middle-aged guys who have no business being on roller skates. But that's not going to stop them for competing well, because, for their daughter's kids love. Are, kids are always smarter than adults. Well, it's funny because the girlfriend was asking me about the appeal of Ferris Bueller, and I explained that she's too far removed from that time period to ever appreciate where they were coming from with those movies. Ferris Bueller's one of the greatest cinematic achievements of the 20th century. Well, she has a thing for Alan Ruck's character, I think. She really likes the sequence. And there was some fan art that we saw at one of the conventions, <laughs> too. Where, where it's- yes, I can completely understand why she is interested in the wounded duck because, you know, she's with you. So <laughs> clearly she looks for the person who's not well put together and is just on, on the verge of falling apart at any minute. And there you go, Frank. Well, there was a commission at one of these conventions where it's Ruck's character, Cameron, staring at the painting, the Impressionist painting Mm -hmm. at the Chicago Museum. And I think there's just something about that image, that iconography that really resonated with her. And so she wants to watch it, but she wants to watch it for Cameron. And if you're watching the movie for Cameron, that's a different kind of sad. (laughs) You know, it's funny that one scene where he's staring at the painting, you have to interpret it, what it means to you, and I think that scene means so much to so many people. It, it it's, it's one of the so most powerful deep. scenes in the movie to me. It's one of those scenes where it feels so fucking deep when you're 14, and it's a little harder to pull that con off on somebody who's older, nah, but I it still maybe. feels, it, you still get the feels. It might be because I was programmed when I was 14 when I saw it, but I still feel it. In that scene, I still get all like, <gasps> kind of catching my breath and stuff. So <laughs> Now, I met him. By the way, at a convention, um, it, and he was there probably Wait, because Matthew of Broderick or Alan Ruck. Alan Ruck. Okay, uh, I met him at a convention probably because he was there. I would imagine because of Star Trek. I'm not really sure, um, but you know, of course, he'd just come off Spin City and all these other things. And he was like the nicest guy I've ever met at a convention. You know, he asked me my name. He used my name later on. He wanted, you know, I asked him to get a picture. So he came out and we did all it. And we just chatted for a while. And then later on, I saw him on the street like the next day. We're waiting at a stoplight. And he looks at me and goes, we met the other day, didn't we? And I was like, yeah. He goes, what's your name? And I told my name again. He's like, that's right. Yeah, good to see you again, man. And I was like, wow, where's that coming from? You know, and it's not like we're BFFs and we're hanging out. But it just it I felt like he was a genuinely nice guy. When I was interviewing Peter David for the Idlehead podcast, Brian Boss, uh, 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 what's his name? Brian Boswick. But Brian Boswick walked up, was chatting with Peter David, and he made a point of chatting with me too, because, just because I was there, just because I was another human being, and he was that kind of guy. So uh, I think that was just a good cast of people. They got people who clearly loved one another working on that show. That's awesome. Well, Michael J. Fox was the lead, so I mean, it's you know probably you, you follow the leader. Well, that and it says something that when he left, so many of the other people left it with him. Yeah, it's like it just and wasn't the same Charlie for them. Gene. Yeah, it's not. One of the guys that anybody's ever going to say what a wonderful experience they had meeting him. Winning. Unless, of course, he pays for their prostitute. <laughs> so, yes, uh, the roller skate issue. It's cute. 
I do love the bits of the fathers having the pillows on their butts to fall down, which mm-hmm. is hysterical. Hetty continues to be such a terrible bitch. Now, I do think there's a scene here that could have gone horribly wrong when Hetty first reveals to her father that he has to go to the roller rink. I think he was within an inch of backhanding her. He's punching that piece of paper where the walkers goad him into taking part of this. He should have put his finger right through that. And that looks violent. This guy has really got a rage on. Again, that's why I think we were one code-approved panel minus of... I felt like the ending almost was a little anticlimactic because, yes, you know, we, you get the beats where Patsy wins, Patsy and her dad win the race, and uh, Hetty goes through the lemonade stand, but it all happens so quickly. It's almost like I had to reread both panels twice to, like, oh, that's how it resolved. Oh, it's over now. Wow, that was fast. Okay. So I, I, I did feel like the ending didn't connect well, but then if I step back from it, you know what? It probably ends just like every other Betty and Veronica strip, so it works. But again, Hetty just takes it that one step too far when she straight up tries to trip she first she trips him and then they all fall into a tumble like a big mound of people then he gets back up again she square gets him right in the crack man he's jumping <laughs> yeah. ouch his legs come off the ground there was some penetration there dude uh, that ain't right I, for a second there, I had to stop and think okay that's not an ice skate right because that looked like oh, a straight up dude. ass murder he had the pillow but still yeah. man whoa she's a horrible human being well it's yeah. funny that he's got the shirt with a big C on it where I really think Hedy did that shirt <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's play a little game here. What kind of girl do you think Hetty would grow up to be? You know, forget what's going on in the Marvel Universe right now. You know, is she too rich to become trailer trash? Is she one of those girls who goes on to be part of the Junior League and becomes a really upstanding part of society but is kind of bitchy around her friends? Is she the girl from Desperate Housewives who's sleeping with everyone? You know, who who, who does she grow up to be? She's a cross between Paris Hilton and Patrick Bateman. I don't know who Patrick Bateman is, but American Psycho. Ah, okay. She's somewhere between those two extremes because she's just as superficial and self-involved as Paris Hilton, but she will straight up murder somebody. I think by by after all these years of frustration, she's just going to straight up kill people at this point. So uh, maybe in her twenties, she didn't have as strong of an adversary as she had with Patsy, and maybe she's cooled down some. But otherwise, I think she's chopping people up listening to Huey Lewis in the news. She straight. (laughs) She strikes me as somebody that's always going to seek out somebody to hate. And somebody to belittle and someone to want to get the best of. Yeah. But I think she's actually capable enough to where she could destroy a lesser foe. If Patsy wasn't almost as nasty as she is, she, she would just dominate. So, Hetty versus Veronica. Who wins? Oh, Hetty's going to destroy Veronica. I think so, because Veronica's got a little bit of a nice streak in her. Yeah, she actually cares about her fellow human beings. I don't typically see that happening with Hetty. Anytime that she shows any human emotion, I'm just assuming it's part of a long con. <laughs> Fair enough. That's part of what makes her so hot because she's like teenage Linda Fiorentino. Okay. Did you ever see The Last Temptation? Oh, I I know who who she is. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You sound like you've known her in a certain kind of sense. Oh, I'm aware of Linda Fiorentino's body of work. Let's just leave that (laughs) out. I'm having some happy thoughts right now, though. (laughs) Like something that seeks its level. I want to spit tax. I want to be evil and cheat at jacks. I want to be wicked. I want to tell lies. I want to be mean and throw mud pies. 
On to Patsy Walker, The Weaker Sex. To my thinking, this is the second best story and the most hellcatty story. It opens up with these two boss-looking hoodlums. And these guys are caricatured so specifically that I have to assume that either there was a period actor or somebody the artist knew. Their faces look like they have to have been somebody who was real. And there are a couple of burglars. They busted into Patsy's house. Patsy has a candelabra. She's shaking at these guys, forcing them to swear not to rob her. We're going into the story. We're back to seeing picture thoughts but in this case it's representations of what Patsy and Nancy are hearing on the radio because again this predates television they're listening to these radio dramas they're getting ready to go to sleep a horror one comes up and freaks the girls out and they're staying at Patsy's house obviously Patsy's mom and dad are having their 20th anniversary and they're out on the town dancing seriously Patsy's mom does not look like she is the mother of a teenager uh, <laughs> so meanwhile the lights are out in the Patsy Walker house and these two goons who've been watching the house for hours while these poor little girls were undressing, they notice the lights are finally out. They go climbing into the windows. They're after the family silver. Do you remember when that was a thing? Yeah. And they actually find a real piggy bank that they're shaking and counting out a whole like dollar and change worth of somebody's savings. The girls are hearing this noise downstairs and they decide to turn up the radio to try to scare away the robbers. It just so happens that it's a crime drama on the radio at the time and a cop is telling the hoodlums to freeze. The guys are fooled for just a bit. But then once hoodlum A realizes that it's just a couple of girls who are trying to use their fingers as a gat, he goes to lock them up in the cellar and... And starts robbing the place again. The walkers show up and get back home. Dad Walker's going to throw down with the goon. Guess what? The goon's a little better at throwing down than Dad is. And is sitting on the guy's back, pounding his face into the carpet. So finally, Goon B is coming through the window to try to help out. Not that Goon A needs help with Dad Walker. So Patsy grabs one candlestick. Mom grabs another candlestick. And they bash the two goons on the head. Lady or no lady, she's going to save her man. The police come and take him away. So crime stopped. Right. Minor crime. They busted into, uh, I mean, yeah, they've, they've got Patsy hostage and everything, but they're stealing from a piggy bank. It's crime, but through a humor filter. And the actions of our heroines actually make the crime escalate to something more than it ever would have been if they just stayed in bed and kept quiet. Yeah, it went to like imprisonment <laughs> and yeah. assault and battery. Instead, they would have just, you know, stole some knives and forks in a piggy bank. Yeah, but the fight between the crook and the dad, it's really violent, but really funny at the same time. <laughs> yeah. He's just bet. Yeah. <laughs> he's got him funny. down. He's just, huh? He's screaming, say uncle. And he's like, no. As no, he's no. beating his head just, into the grass. Just bumping his head. Um, this is another story not only where there's a crime element, but that does like the first story where not thought balloons, but the radio actually has images. It's not just producing sounds, but we see images of what is actually occurring in the radio play or when there's a song, you see the singer floating above the radio. So there's those clever elements that were in the first story are here again. Well, and then when they're listening to the horror story, yeah. the thought balloon is the blonde woman running from a skeleton with a knife, which is saying "hee hee" from ear to ear. It's so awesome. I don't know. It's it's just it's it's jarring because it's so creative that like my eyes like drawn to that panel. It's so great. And again, you've got the little gags that you don't have in the middle stories. Once again, you've got a bad guy crossing his fingers, and then there's a box and an arrow saying "ha ha monkey business." Uh, yeah. So it's drawing your attention to things. In a way, those kinds of devices are a little 
little condescending to, I don't know, the age of the reader they were marketing this to or uh, that they thought would be reading this. But, you know, sometimes it over-explained things or it doesn't trust that the reader will have noticed something. But here in this case, haha, monkey business, it's better than cross fingers or whatever labels. The first story was giving information that I think we already had. Right. Here it's a nice joke. We do agree this is the second best story in the book, right? Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. I think it also goes to our predilections as readers because the middle stories are high school hijinks stories, whereas these two stories have a crime element, go somewhere a little bit off from what teen humor comics usually do. So perhaps that's what charms us, but I think they're also, maybe that's also what charmed Al Jaffe as an artist, because those stories are more interesting and visually more appealing and have more gags in them. You mentioned on the Lonely Hearts podcast how the people who were reading Archie were more than likely elementary or early middle school because they have this idealized version of what high school is going to be and they enjoy reading these stories about the escapades of high school that people wish that they'd had, where I think that these stories have just a little bit more of a sophistication a little bit more of a broad appeal because they're willing to dip into genre and get a little bit more involved in their stories. I can see high schoolers sticking with this book and me as a grown-ass man, I got a kick out of it too. Well, I think, is this the only story where there's like a straight-up moral to the story? I mean, at the end, they even close it with, there isn't much of a moral to this story except crime is a headache. It didn't seem like these were really teaching you lessons like some of these strips often do. Well, I think that was one of the selling points of Timely and Marvel was that they weren't trying to tell you a moral. It it was really about gratification you didn't buy a Submariner comic because he was going to be a great hero. You re- bought a Submariner comic to see him beat the hell out of a city and knock cops around and be a total asshole. With the exception of Captain America, Marvel was really about playing to the baser instincts of their audience, which is, I think, part of what makes them entertaining now more so than other comics from the time period. Yeah, I can see that. But even then, I think some of the 60s patsy stuff, there seemed to be morals in them more than there were in these. But Well, I think you have a more clear-cut protagonist and antagonist and even the antagonist was more sympathetic. Where in these stories, while I enjoy them, I'm not necessarily rooting for Patsy or Nancy. They're not very relatable. Even with Nancy, while she might be reticent, she's still involved in some questionable choices. So I don't necessarily like these characters in these stories, but I enjoy the stories and the characters facilitate that. I think also there's probably a question of formula that's eventually distilled from, you know, this is early enough in comics and in this type of genre that there are no real rules or you might be trying to tweak. And by the 60s, not only is there a comics code that's imposing a certain formula to certain kinds of stories, and I can see how more moralistic they might become post-code, because all stories had a moral code of behavior, you know, crime never pays and all sorts of things that were in that. And at some point, writers have been doing this for so long, and the same writers are, if Stanley's writing, Stanley did write some Patsy, right? So if if Stanley's writing Patsy, and he's also writing Fantastic Four, well, the same kind of moral element could be present in all those stories. But at this point, we're not, and we're not even sure who the writer is, but there's no real formula yet. One of the things that that we discussed on Lonely Hearts in the very first episode was the origin of romance comics, which is, this isn't romance, but it's close because romance comics were only around for, at this point, a couple of years. If we accept the idea that the genre was invented by uh, 
Simon and Kirby for Prize Comics. And before that, Simon and Kirby were doing a teen humor comic with elements of romance in it. Mm. And that's what led to the actual romance comics where it was pure romance comics. And even those pure romance comics, at least the, the one we covered and the couple others that we read just to you know, get a feel for it, had action in them, had a criminal element in them. They were comics written and drawn by Simon and Kirby. You look at what they'd done before and what would do later, and you can see how would these guys do romance. Well, obviously, they'd put action in it and be dynamic. At this point, it's all sort of nobody has a real formula about these things, and they're injecting different elements that eventually when the genres were purified you would lose this that's how maybe patsy walker becomes more and more straight humor perhaps and then a straighter soap opera perhaps uh, but at this point it's so early nobody knows right. what nobody knows what they're doing they just don't want to do archie they, they want to right. do archie but be different enough from archie but well, you want to have some criminals in there you want to have some visual gags in there you know whatever the artist or writer was thinking to them it was all pretty disposable in any case so well, throwing everything at the wall, right? I'd say not even that, but also I'm sure reader feedback, right? I'm sure you got more reader feedback that say, you know what, we'd like to tell us more about Patsy and Buzz. So then they would start, okay, well, maybe we need to make Patsy and Buzz a more defined couple. And then people were like, well, you know what, maybe they're now fans of Hetty Wolf. So instead of Hetty Wolf being such a villain all the time, well, why don't we bring Hetty Wolf into the group, right? And that kind of, it probably forms the crew as you go to. Well, that sure. also the script progresses, you de-emphasize Nancy and you emphasize Hetty. Hetty becomes right. a more sympathetic character character where Nancy's much more in the background. She serves a role, but she's more of a sounding board between the two characters. Yeah, cipher. Right. <clears throat> it would just sort of evolve that way. Like you said, this is the, the original DNA that feeds those old strips. So even if I like the old strips better, they don't get to be those old strips without this early stuff. So, so yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting to read, for sure. Kind of the way someone like Superman works is the Superman of the Golden Age is not the Superman of any of the later decades. And in fact, when Chuck Austin tried to do the those types of stories where Superman was more rough and sarcastic, the fans rejected it. But it's fun to go back and look at those early stories and see the intentions of the creators and uh, you enjoy where Superman came from and why he was the way that he was, even if you recognize that character is vastly different from Mort Weisinger, is vastly different from John Byrne and so forth. Patsy's still Patsy, Hetty's still Hetty, Nan's still Nan, Buzz is still an idiot, right? I mean, it's- With his crisp brown bow tie? Right. Working in the malt shop, soda shop. Did Hetty ever return to the Marvel Universe in some form? Oh, yeah. My Did understanding you? is she's going to be in the new series that's coming out. Awesome. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's an all-female creative team, and they seem to be pushing the old comic element of it, too. That's why it's called Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat, rather than just Hellcat. So I'm really looking forward to that. If they explore these same stories that I've been exploring since I've become interested in the character, I would love to see that manifest within the context of the modern Marvel Universe, especially the dynamic of Patsy versus Hetty because one thing that the character has lacked since she became a superheroine in the 70s is she really doesn't have a nemesis. She doesn't have somebody to play off on a regular basis. Buzz was turned into Mad Dog and he's made appearances on that character but again he's an idiot. So there's only so much you can do with that guy. He's only so much of a threat. They really countered that character fairly early on and no pun intended neutered him. He's just not a potent villain. (laughs) But Hetty is somebody who Patsy clashed with for decades before she even became a superheroine. She is the Lex Luthor of this 
this equation. So I'd love to see that played in the newer comics. But yeah, Kurt Busiek included many of these characters in the Avengers Annual from when he reintroduced the character and revived the character after her death in the 90s. And some of these characters popped up in the Steve Englehart miniseries that followed that as well. And didn't they reference some of this in the uh, Catherine Eminem miniseries you read? Um, maybe. I mean, it's been a while. Okay. Like, and, and I didn't I've know never who read Hedy it. was I'm back then. So I, I, I didn't have any background on, you know, the Patsy and Hetty thing at all. Hetty specifically is a, a major figure in that Avengers annual. She sets a lot of things in motion, so she's very much a part of that. And I think okay. they've all popped up throughout the Marvel Universe. Patsy carries some of these guys with her. Awesome. Kind of already alluded to this earlier. Although I do enjoy this issue from the 40s. It does kind of make me want to go read some more of the Stan Lee stuff. So yeah, because I, I, I've, I've really enjoyed all the stuff I've read of that so far. And uh, before we go too, we've got a, a few more pages here. There's a Hey Look strip, which is a, a cute little quickie, but it happens to be by Harvey Kurtzman, who is one of the famed creators of the Mad Magazine. Yeah, right. I, I did not make it down that far. And then of course you've got the full page ad for the Dick Tracy two-way wrist radio, which I think you can get from Apple these days. <laughs> And it's actually, I believe it's also three ninety eight, mm-hmm. except it's three hundred and ninety eight. And I like how you have this sort of quasi comic strip to help sell it too. No batteries, no electricity, no tubes. <laughs> when was the last time you saw that disclaimer in an ad? <laughs> no battery. How long did this thing work? <laughs> I can't, ima- like I can't imagine a two-way wrist radio really working. Somebody has to have collected these things, right? Yeah. Somebody's got to have a collection of just random-ass comic book advertised garbage. That's kind of what all the stuff was. Well, not just that, but you've got hardcore Dick Tracy collectors out there, too. So this specific oh, item is definitely sure. in collections, yeah. Right, for sure. The Dick Tracy fanboys have got to have it. Yeah. But, like, they- I want to see the pocket abacus. i got to see this thing. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing they do fail to mention is that they don't say no string. So maybe it's sort of like one of those soup can two-way radios where you've got to be like three feet away from the other person for it to work. Well, on the side, they say you can listen to the actual radio programs. But there's no way that's a transistor radio. Those really didn't come out until the 60s. Certainly not at that size. I know. It's, well, and it's two-way. Well, technically, if you put a I soup mean, can next to a radio, you can hear the radio broadcast through the soup can. So It receives broadcasts and is a private two-way transmitter between me and all my friends who own a Dick Tracy. So it probably, probably has a, a setting. You can set it to catch yeah, probably no, it, a, a frequency. You can tune it two that works with other I'm telling you if you turn the dial you can also see through clothes it's bullshit there's no fucking way I'm Frank, not buying Frank, Frank it says it right here not just a dream ellipsis but a scientific reality exclamation point <laughs> I'm sure the veracity of a comic book published by a con man like Martin Goodman, that's all the validity I need. That's all the bona fides I need to put down my $3.98. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's all, oh, the, oh. all the scientific marvels, the last page has a lose five pounds a week, no starving, no exercise, no laxatives, no drugs, and no massage. <laughs> Um, yeah, but they don't mention anything about organ failure. You know, that's still an option. Uh, you still can't lose five pounds a week it, with our modern technology. So, yeah, it, no massage. Now, now I would just say, now it says paleo. <laughs> <laughs> 
me is, is a massage a deal breaker? I, I, I don't want to starve. I don't want to have to do exercise. I certainly don't want to take laxatives or drugs. No massage? I'm actually interested in the massage diet. If I can get some literature on that, that would be fantastic. Isn't that like the one where you have the conveyor belt and it's just sort of like rocking your tummy until the fat burns away? I guess that could be. Oh, uh, yeah. The- Which I actually think that in some form is has that's it's come back. I think I've seen something like that. And that was what it reminded me of. I'm like, that's just the damn conveyor belt all over again. Yeah. But it was a 70s craze, wasn't it? Well, no, you or got did- those old black and whites. I think there's a Betty Boop cartoon where she chops into one of those things. So, OK, uh, all kinds of stupidity is cyclical. So my grandmother had one. We used to ride it. <laughs> <laughs> it was a ride for kids. I mean, I- uh, OK, <laughs> you know, you got into the belt and. I'm just uh, you it know, vibrated. The, the, that's that's <laughs> the part that I'm hanging up on. I'm afraid it's like a <laughs> climbing the rope in gym class kind of ride. So uh, <laughs> with no uh, ill effects. And, and then, of course, on the last page, we've got our uh, Red Rider Cowboy Carbine Daisy Air Rifle. Son, you're going to put your eye out. Yeah, was exactly the first thing I thought of. Ah, there it is. The holy grail of Christmas gifts, the Red Rider 200-shot range model air rifle. Guns. Guns. Mailing a coupon for guns. Hey, is A Christmas Story a thing up there? A Christmas Story? Yeah. You mean the movie? Yeah. It's not. I mean, it exists. It's not a thing. Okay. Good. It may be. It may be a thing. I'm a. I'm kind of a Christmas. Uh, Scrooge. Grinch. Yeah. Okay. Scrooge. Yeah. So. Hmm. Well, no. In the '80s, Superstation TBS and other outlets would play that movie to death. So now it's one of those like holiday traditions. Like, uh, it's a Wonderful Life down here. So it, it, right. it literally is like one of the Christmas movies now. Sure, I can believe it. What's the connection? Ralphie. What would you like for Christmas? Horrified, I heard myself blurted out. I want an official Red Rider Carbon Action 200 Range Ball Air Rifle. The main plot of the story is that the kid is trying to get a Red Rider BB rifle. And the entire time he's trying to get to Santa Claus, trying to get to his teachers, anybody he can to get his rifle. And everybody, one after another, tells him, No. Shoot your eye out. Oh, no. It was the classic mother BB gun block. <laughs> You'll shoot your eye out. And uh, so that it's, it, most of the movie is his quest to get that specific rifle, the Red Rider. And here we've got it, the Red Rider. There it is, the Red Rider and the little Indian caricature there. Me or read them. As they would call them in uh, Canada. What, what, what was your term for them again? I'm sorry. First Nations. First Nations. I First love Nations. that. Yeah. Huge I fan of there. the First Nations. Yeah, I bet it's, it's It's grammatically awkward because you would be First Nations. So, you know, you're an American, you would be First Nations kind of thing. I, it's odd to say. Oof. Actually, I did just see the, the quotation above our First Nation here. It says, me read them. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's no, tough. It's, that's tough. <laughs> that hasn't aged well. Uh, no, you sell cigars not, with that mouth? I, that is an understatement. What was that? What you say, for I said you sell cigars with that mouth. Right. Oh man. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's it. On the bank of the river, stood running back, young Indian brave. On the other side of the river, stood his lovely. Indian maid, little white dove, was a her name, such a lovely sight to see, but their tribes but with each other, so their love could never be. So, moving on to the next and last story. 
Yeah, this is a long one too. I mean, we're gonna have to tack on a whole other hour of this podcast. Uh, how many pages we, did that one we run? May, we may actually be able to, knowing us, but two pages. <laughs> two pages. There is economy of storytelling, man. They in and out in two freaking pages. Well, that's the way it used to be. That's what they used to bring in new writers and new artists to cut their teeth. And they'd say, look, you, you want to prove yourself. Here's an eight-page story. Because it's actually easier to tell a 16-page story or a 22-page story than it is a two- or eight-page story. That's the reason why Stanley started doing serialized storytelling is he realized that he could come up with a plot or his artists could come up with a plot and they could string it along for months instead of coming up with a new plot for every single issue. Yep. And uh, Steve Englehart, one of the reasons why he... He reached back and got Patsy Walker out of the bin and put her into the superhero universe is he'd gotten to start writing these romance comics before they let him do any superhero stuff. He didn't get to write Patsy specifically, but he was writing those romance books that Marvel was still publishing in the early 70s or so. And then he got to graduate up to Bizarre Adventures. You know, romance comics are such an interesting genre. It's a shame there's not like a podcast or anything dedicated to them. Yeah, you'd think that somebody would have picked up that baton by now. Right. And huh. I didn't mean that euphemistically at all, despite all of our other innuendos. <laughs> Oh, Siskoid, we love you. We love you. You and Boss. Yeah, if you pick up on and it starts humming, oh, Canada, you're in the right spot. That's right. Patsy and Buzz from 1961. I love, love, love that their outfits were designed by readers. I think that's yes. like the coolest thing ever. Yes, absolutely. Such a great way to interact with your readership is they're wearing the freaking costume that you came up with for them, or in this case, an outfit. Man, and, and that was, I think, part of what fired up the Legion of readership back in the day was that <laughs> level of interaction. <laughs> so it's, it's golden. It, it definitely will make, even if you have a small following, it makes them so much more connected to the material and so much more faithful of an audience, I think. I agree completely. So it's a fun little story. I love that she feigns being scared just to get him to cuddle on her. And not to borrow from what you said about Hetty earlier, but Buzz, I mean, are we agreed Buzz does get a handy in the theater? Is that Honestly, I, I think that's the main problem. You were saying that Hetty definitely puts out. I think it's just the opposite. I no, think, I said Hetty goes down. Oh, Hetty goes day. down. Okay. I, I think it's just the opposite. I think that she doesn't do anything where Patsy, maybe she does some butt stuff on your birthday. <laughs> So, uh, so I think I that's like part to of what think gives that her. Hetty is a little more innocent. No, so, I'm sorry. I like to think that Patsy's a little more innocent because I mean, who didn't get a handy in a movie theater from your girlfriend in high school? It's just that that's not just the way me, man. Work. What fucking cool nerd school did you go to, man? Seriously, I didn't get a handy in a fucking movie theater. Never, ever. Oh God, man, I. I can't did probably miss him. Can't even count how many times. Yeah, anyway, that's cool. Hey, Although um, you remind me, there was one girlfriend that I should have, could have uh, had on a roof of a building one time. That would have been kind of cool, but I didn't have the stones for that. So somehow, as unbelievable as it may be, I guess I was a player in high school. I don't know. But I'm figuring Patsy's doing the because I mean, you just look at these scenes. You look at his smile in the second page in the top right hand panel. I mean, that's happening. So oh, I guarantee. Because uh, here's the thing: Patsy treats Buzz like shit. And yet, despite all the scheming of Hetty to pull Buzz away, he never even remotely seriously considers changing teams. And I think what it is, Patsy, she puts on the good girl act, but dude, I had sisters, and doesn't matter how innocent they seem, the ones that are keeping their boyfriends happy do what they gotta do within reason. They'll, wow. They may have their lines, they may say, okay, this is as far as I'm gonna go, but they at least know to go as far as they need to to keep the man around, because we're just led by our dicks. Let's just be honest. There's and I think no Hetty's the one that. person who thinks that she's so hot that she can get away with doing anything for the guy and that's why she can't keep a boyfriend 
That there could be some truth to that. I, I could possibly get behind that, and there were definitely girls like that in high school. So <laughs> interesting philosophy. So you see, you say it so judgmentally, man. A guy named Shag should be a lot more laid back about this sort of thing. <laughs> Whoa, what are you I, talking about? I, 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 there were girls like that. It's like no, no, no. I think most girls are like that. I think that the exceptions are the ones who think that they're going to kiss their chastity rings instead of giving a handy in the movie theater. I don't know. I just know I had a good high school run of girlfriends. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You sound like you did all right to me. So yeah. I was pleased. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, moving on. Oh. Hey, I think that the was in one of those cherry pop tarts too. Could be. Could be. LCD was in one for sure. She was the hot nerd girl. You know who I was rooting for. Right. Of course. <laughs> yeah, I love how like you know. But keep in mind, the nerd girls in those comics were still drawn as beautiful as the most beautiful girl in the book. They just had glasses on and frumpy clothes. That was one instance where the redhead was a little off putting, though. Because they put those giant freckles all over her. Talk about Cherry? No, no, no. There was a thicker redheaded girl that popped up in that run that had these gigantic freckles. Like they were proportionate to her eyeballs. Are we talking about Cheryl Blossom or Cherry Pop Tart? Oh, I meant Cherry Pop Tart. My bad. Well, I, well, you said that. I just I've only ever read the one issue, so I have no idea. Oh, okay. Well, I'm more of a fan of that type of material. Okay. Because I wasn't as popular in high school as you were. Oh God. <laughs> I'm going to really regret when you air any of this. <laughs> Thankfully, you only have a listenership of like three people. So right. I'm only going to get a few messages about it. Yeah, but they're all your listeners. So you're going to have the cross-contamination regardless. God. <laughs> this is going to go very badly for me. <laughs> She's a very nice girl. She really is. She was, she was well behaved. Anyway. <laughs> it's too late to walk it back, dude. I can bleep out the name, but that's best I can, I can secure for you, I'm afraid. I don't really care if you use the name. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm that sh- well, then. well, I don't know. My name's Shag, so I mean, it's, uh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe you should blurb the name. Because <laughs> <laughs> if your gal is anything like my gal, if they get any morsel of information, you're going to be hearing about for the rest of your fucking life. For your mystery days. Patsy's Beauty Secrets. Many readers have asked how Patsy always manages to look so beautiful. It's a fucking drawing. That's why. Here, for the first time, she reveals her beauty secrets for her many friends. When I'm going out on a date, I always allow plenty of time for my beauty and dressing ritual. Beauty always starts with a bath. Turn the water on full force and add the first part of your fragrance series, the bath salts or bubble bath. (laughs) Shit's fucking weird. Now you see why I was so fixated While the scented tub is filling, shampoo your hair. If you're looking for gleaming golden tones, use lemon for your after shampoo rinse for pretty red highlights i use vinegar rinse i hear those are good douches too next cleanse your uh, it might get to that <laughs> looking at some of these pictures further down buzz she likes did, a clean bath she did she did say to bring all but your your bathroom get. uh was it there's a part where she's saying to bring i'm all reading your it we're gonna fucking get to it read next, faster next cleanse your face i'm trying to but i keep getting interrupted by asshole faster mac faster <laughs> next cleanse your face thoroughly with soap and wash soap and water or a skin cleaner. You want to make sure you're already wet before you get started. You might like to use a facial mask too. <laughs> it stimulates your skin to a happy glow. Tightens your pores to a baby smooth texture. Cover your hairdo with a towel and relax in the tub. Lather yourself gently in slow motion. Use all the pretty bath props. Told you. <laughs> 
You own a brush, bath mitt, sweet smelling soap. After you, after I've you heard drink. girls use brushes as a starter. Yes, that's why they like their handles so intricately shaped. Uh, yeah, they like. Have texture. you seen shampoo bottles? This is making. They, they're not. Are they? They're not really using shampoo bottles, are they? Uh, the, dude, they look like dildos. All, all the ones I see are like really fat. I mean, that, they'd what be kind like of Gonzo porn. Are you kind of out with that are using <laughs> shampoo bottles. Just saying. After you've rinsed off and patted dry, puff on great quantities of bath powder. Make sure your fragrance are all of the same family. Your it doesn't smell is, like a fish fragrance. Your That's aim important. is to smell like a flower, not a flower shop. <laughs> you want to have the right size bouquet. Now get into your fresh, clean party lingerie. Slip on a robe, and you're ready to begin your makeup. Artificial lighting drains your skin of a certain amount of natural color, so evening makeup should be a bit brighter than daytime makeup. Shit, some of this might actually be like legit advice I don't for think a going comic. Like, I don't think they. Yeah, I think that's the whole thing. I think their idea was to do the advice stuff from other magazines that's dry text in an illustrated form. Yeah. I think that was the whole point of this book. It was a different way of packaging a comic but, book. This would be like a pre-pubescent Vogue magazine. I'm thinking post-pubescent. They're very uh-huh. concerned about hygiene and makeup. So and the ritual. Crazy. I'm not gonna read any more of this because it's tripping me out. Okay, we can move on anyway. Okay. Okay, so here's the deal. Folks know I don't like Facebook, so the main place we promote the show is on Twitter. And what I used to do is let Twitter's notifications pile up in the social media folder of our email, and then I would just sort through all that stuff to determine who had given us likes, retweets, that sort of thing. Unfortunately, Twitter recently rejiggered their notifications, so now I have to go into each individual tweet related to the podcast to find this materials. Also, apparently, uh, quite a few months ago, Twitter stopped notifying us when we had new followers. So I figured the 75th episode would be probably the best time to just go through a fuck ton of new followers. If we've missed you previously or not followed back, give us a shout. I'll try to remedy that. We also recently used an episode to catch up on comments. We won't be addressing any comments this time, but we'll catch you on the next round because of the length of all the other social media coverage. So recently we've received favorable Facebook attention from Joe Crawford, Martin Gray, Ruth Sutherland, Ali Batts, DeBeche, Derek William Crabb, Grant Richter, and Kichi Baker. New Twitter followers include Adele Hazim, Afterlight Comics, Ahmed Med Ali, Ahmed Nasif, Akshay Taid, Ali El Doki, Alan at Comic Book Guy DC, Amit Sarandar Doc, Amir Khaled. By the way, I am noticing a slight pattern here as far as names that Twitter for some reason decided not to notify us about. Sorry, guys. Art of Ashley Rose, Bam Pow Comics, Ben D. Russell, Beyond the Void Podcast, Biko Django, Biogenetics, Bob Culture, Bobcat, Brevetta, Brian Shoemaker, Brooding Muse, Captain Bat, Chris Nally, The Cinnabud Podcast, Comic Books World, Christine Mendias, Dark Side's Mother, Dennis Haggerty, Digest Cast, Dr. DC Podcast, Dr. Fate Naboo, Dungeon Choir, The Gar Podcast with Glenn Walker and Ray Cornwall, Ghost Island, Girls Gone Geek, The Go-To Geeks, Grant Sawyer, Grateful Dalek, Harry Allen the Flash, Helen Haddock, Herman Lowe, Hollywood Already Did It Podcast, Home of Superman Metropolis, Illinois, Hostess Ads, Hot New USA Today, Hussein Assam, Janny, Jay Sandlin, Writer, Jennifer DeRoss, Just Dudes Being Guys Podcast, Justin Matai Samuel, Kay Cameron, Katie Taylor, Kid Songs, The Kirby Cast, Landon Huber, Let's Chat, Living Positive, Lol, Long Box of Darkness, The Lost Ones Podcast, Lucas DC Fan, Lucas N, LVLUP, MR Camposharo, Mad Cave Studios, Mark James, Market Nation of Nerds, Marvel Madness Podcast, Martin Kessler, Melinda Griffin, 
Melrose Place Podcast, Michael Costigan, Michelle Fife, Mohammed Mazir, Morning Comics, Masters of the Universe Cast, MSC Safety Solutions, My Info, My Secret Origin, Nerd Girl, Nerds Chatting, No Promises, Pass the F and Popcorn, Paul K. Bisson, Pete Robertson, Piss Links, The Pod Couple, Poppin' Comics, R. Douglas, Redneck Rebuttal, Reese FYBW, Retro Lightbox, Rob Kelly Creative, Ron Big Man on Campus Utley, The RU63, Ryan Hassenstab, Scary Thoughts, Sean Growth, Shit Show Poopcast, Shubham, Slangwood Resists, Some Other World, Special Owl, Spine Conference 17, Steve Chung, Steve Rogers, Superman Movie Minute, Sword Edge, Talking Backwards, Talking Legion, Tarnished Pyrite, Theme Park Films Podcast, Toll Booth, Tony Siponi, Tushar Shah, TRSXK, Valhalla Cindermane, Vert 65, Vinicus Cadiro, Versus Kaliswari, W.C. Souter, White Geraldine, Wilfred Antonio Alme, Witchblade, Yahia Yoyo, and Zencast. Retweet frantic ones include Ange, Bernadette Russell, Between the Pages, Bobcat, Comic Reflections, Ed Moore Jr., Inigo Montoya, Jorge de Arlanza, Con L, The Pod Couple, Siskoid, Talk Nerdy to Me, Transform and Roll Out, Keepers of the Favorites Flame include 100 Issues, Ali Bats, Amsel von Canterbury, Andrea North, Backseat Directors, Caroline Wells, Chris at Bat Books, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Columbus Comics Corner, David Golding, DJ Genuine Porcupine, Dwight L. McPherson, The Fan Holes Podcast, Funny Comics, Good Times Great Movies, Gord Tolton, Grant Sawyer, James Hudson, Jeffrey Brown, Your Roses, The Neek, Abdel Abner Dracula, Parliapod Comics Talk, Pass the F and Popcorn Podcast, People for People, Podcast Radio, Ryan Daly, Sean Merrick, Steve Sellers, Strickland Angela, and Willie Yarbrough. And finally, the Merry Marvel Marching Society, 20th Century Geek, the 108th Sage, Alphabet Flight Podcast, and E at Pop Fox Culture, Avatar of the Green, Matt at Shapirak, A Beardo Talks Film, Bone Dragon Comics, Brody's Kitchen Podcast, Bronze Age Baby, Cash Flag, Chris Sheehan, The Cinnabud Podcast, Comic Book Vault, Comics in the Golden Age, Darren Ruth Sutherland, Ed Moore, Indie Comics Fan, Marvel Bronze Age, and Teal Production, Hollywood Already Did That Podcast, Ice in the Face, Infinite Monkey Comics, Jake and Tom Conker, Joe Crawford, Just in Time Podcast, Justice First Dawn, Keith G. Baker, Kevin Daji, Lava Hog, Longbox Crusade, Mark James of Poop Culture Podcast, Moducast, a He-Man and Master of the Universe podcast hosted by Dr. G. Man of Neurology, Namor Submariner, Pietro Blaxamoff, Rad Adventures Podcast Network, Randy Caldwell, Richard Field, Terrence Castanguay, Tony Siponi, Resurrections, a Warlock and Thanos podcast, WhenHeWasCool.com, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and YoArt. The Marvel Superheroes podcast is in no way affiliated with or endorsed by Marvel Entertainment. All characters mentioned and audio clips employed are believed covered under fair use, with no infringement intended against their copyright holders. Views expressed in this podcast are assumed legitimate, truthful, and solely possessed by the speaker. Before I forget, I had a couple of questions for you because I thought about throwing you into a stinger on an episode that I was working on over the weekend before the rain started coming down. When you were growing up, did you ever read any of the girls' comics? The what? Girls' comics. The girls' comics. Well, I'm, I'm not sure what that is. 
Well, like comic books for girls. Well, but I don't really remember comic books for girls. I mean, I remember some that came along later when I was past reading comic books, but... Uh, like what? Oh, I mean, Barbie had a comic book, and uh, what was that one where they were a band? Cat something? Josie and the Pussycats? Josie and the Pussycats, yeah. I remember seeing those. Uh, in fact, I think I read a Josie and the Pussycat. But when I was growing up, I don't think there was any comic books for girls. Well, what about Name like... one, and I'll, I'll try to remember. Okay, what about like Archie, Betty and Veronica, that kind of thing? Oh, Oh, well, no, I was an Archie fan. I mean, I didn't think that was a girl's comic book. Yeah, I read Archie. I loved Archie. That's why when that studio band, the Archies, you know, when I heard those songs, I thought they were great. Well, you've got their greatest hits, as I recall. Uh, the Archies? Yeah, I've got them. But, you know, originally there was only like a couple of 45s that came out, I don't know, all in the same year. It was about 1969, I guess. I think it tied into a cartoon they were doing at the time. Probably, because I remember the Archie cartoons, too, and I, I watched them. But when I was little, I know, 9, 10, 11 years old, I read Archie comic books. I just never saw them as a girl's comic. Well, maybe I misspoke. What, what about, like, teen comic books along the same lines? Like those teen well, humor books and things like that? Well, see, I don't remember any of those. Oh, I read Richie Rich. I liked Richie Rich comic books, too. Do you remember one that was put out called... Patsy Walker or Patsy and Hetty? No. Millie the Model? No. Nellie the Nurse? Mm, no, but Nellie the Nurse kind of sounds like one that was in the early 70s that was kind of raunchy. It was more of a, you know, book. Because you had the Truck Brothers and... Are you talking uh, about the Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers? Yeah, the, the Fabulous Freak Brothers and what was that one with the cat? Fritz the Cat. Fritz the Cat. Yeah, I was a big Fritz the Cat fan. But that was, you know, much later on. That was in the 70s that I remember those. I read comic books when I was in the service. They were something, they were always around. There was something you'd get, so I would buy them. But I really liked Fritz the Cat. I remember when that movie came out, I went to see it. In fact, I think there was two Fritz the Cat movies. The second one wasn't so good. Every once in a while, I'll see one of the things that I thought was so great back then, and I see it nowadays, and I go, what a load of crap. 